How should we adjust our expectations for PED players? I'll ask Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs and the Launch Angle Podcast next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 5th. It's show number 29 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs and the Launch Angle podcast, discussing how to adjust expectations after PED use. We'll talk about piggybacking pitchers, playing time in that crowded Texas outfield. He'll have his boons and banes and still more. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols will have coverage of the National League, including Trevor Story, Lorenzo Kane, and other National League player news. And Jock Thompson will have news from the American League, including injuries and worse in Los Angeles, Seattle outfielder Mitch Hanniger, the rotation in Houston, and other American League news. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about his first half takeaways. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at White Sox shortstop Danny Mendick. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Philadelphia right-hander Aaron Nola in New York for a Sunday face-off with Mets right-hander Zach Wheeler and other weekend matchups. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about my first half all-value team. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's the all-star break. We gotta talk some baseball. Because we sure won't be watching any. On Sunday, Major League Baseball will have four games starting out west all of them around 1 p.m. local time, 4 p.m. Eastern. And when the last of those four games is over, so is real baseball, for a few days anyway. I had a friend once in a fantasy league who called the All-Star break the worst time of the year, and I know where he was coming from. Me, I have trouble getting through a Monday or Thursday when I don't have players going. Thankfully, it used to be four days without baseball. Now it's only three. The regular season resumes with a single game on Thursday night, Houston at Texas, then gets back up to full speed on Friday, the 12th, with a full 15-game slate. And I can tell you already, I can't wait. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs and the Launch Angle podcast with Rob Silver and Van Lee. Jeff Zimmerman, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, how you doing, Patrick? I'm doing very well. A happy 4th of July to you and all our American listeners. A big celebratory day, lots of baseball to watch. Uh, it's going to be a, a fun weekend. Uh, let's start off with some information that I got from listening to your podcast, the Launch Angle Podcast. And I was just saying, Jeff, that uh, this is a podcast that I really enjoy because you guys get right to it. Uh, thanks a lot. 
On the pod this week, you guys talked about Frankie Montas, uh, who was suspended for PED usage. I don't know if, if you heard this, but uh, Gene McCaffrey in The Athletic said that he would take Frankie Montas over Chris Sale this year, and I guess he's changed his opinion on that matter because Frankie Montas won't be pitching probably again this year, maybe one start at the end. I think you guys agreed he might get that start at the end of the season, but that generally he's pretty safe to drop in redraft formats unless you can keep him for no cost on reserve. But it's a different story in Dynasty and Keeper League what was your analysis of a PED guy like Montas as a keeper? Um, historically, I looked at the hitters. I wasn't a huge group of pitchers recently, but they um we've actually performed fairly decent coming back. So it's more of an ethical question than a performance one. It's like they've got themselves healthy, and it seems like I said. It's more of an ethicals bit than I think any kind of um, performance pediment. I've looked at the, the past performance of hitters as well, and that was a curious thing for me uh, because most of the guys who had PED suspensions came back and actually did relatively well. And a few years ago, I asked Andy Andres. He's a guy who he works for BaseballHQ.com from time to time, and he's a, a professor at Tufts University in Boston, uh, up in Boston. And he teaches the, the science of baseball, as it were. And I asked him about this, and he said, if you're using steroids, especially as a PED, that the that the positive effects of the steroid use linger for years afterwards, provided you keep working out and that kind of thing, that the you get this big benefit all at once from using them, but the benefit stays with you. And in that regard, at least for hitters he was talking about, there's no reason to not pick up a, a PED guy after the PED suspension because chances are whatever gains he realized won't fall off as much as you might think. It's not a question that he's going to go right back to his original pre-steroid baseline. He's going to still be... Uh, enjoy the advantage. Yeah, and the one thing that a lot of the, I don't know the exact nature, a lot of times during the season, I don't look, but afterwards, that a lot of the PEDs are just to try to get themselves healthy again or to stay healthy. So that, that's kind of one thing is it's more, like I said, it's not so much mus muscle growth anymore as just a recovery type of thing. So that might be one thing I'm worried about is I might look in to see if that's what he he's able to recover a little bit more and keep his velocity up. But like I said, I'm not worried. I think other pitchers, I wouldn't be surprised if other ones are still doing it. We just don't know who. But um, he just made some decent gains this year, and um, I was kind of, like I said, impressed that it happened because he needed to do something because it wasn't working last year. In your launch angle discussion, somebody mentioned that uh, his velocity was actually up a tick this year and, and suggested that might be a positive sign for him. But again, we come back to this concern. How much of the velocity gain can be directly tied to the PEDs? And if so, how much of it was, is going to stay after he's off them? That's a, uh, that is a, a, an interesting and important question. Yeah, and he was thrown even harder this hard, like his first couple seasons. And then... Um, he had the, the injury where he cost him the 2016 season. So he's kind of, he was down. It was actually his velocity last year was kind of down more than normal. So it's kind of just bumped back up to his norm. But, I mean, he's 26. It, it's tough to kind of, you know, constantly throw in 96, 97 miles an hour. Those, it just doesn't happen forever. I mean, there's a few examples. I mean, you can count your, you know, count them on one hand. But the biggest thing for him was just throwing strikes finally. I mean, he finally got that under control. 
I mean, because when he first came back, the injury, I mean, he was having a walk rate over five, and he got it down to almost three last year, and it's almost two this year. I mean, anyone that's going to see their walk rates drop like that are just going to see huge improvements in their um, overall production. Do you have an idea from looking at pitch mix and other things why he's being so much more successful at finding the plate? Um, it's tough to know why that is. I mean, sometimes it's just that they're changing so many different things that, um, you know, just kind of messing around trying to figure out what's actually working. But, um, I think the one thing, yeah, I just think it's kind of more of a mix. It's kind of the same stuff he has always thrown and a lot of stuff's off the plate that he's getting the strikeouts. Um, it's kind of like he's getting the strikeout this year before he's getting to the walk, so they're kind of back up. I think it's just a combination of things, and it, it's tough. You know, if you add a pitch or, like, um, throw one a lot more, how it affects everything else. But whatever he's doing this year, it's definitely working. Or what he was doing was definitely working. I did notice one thing when I looked at his Fangraphs pitch mix, and this is why I raised the question. And I think you guys actually touched on this in the Launch Angle pod. And that is, after several years in the big leagues, he missed all of 2016, but uh, 17, 18, and 2015 before that, a a shorter amount of time, no split-finger fastballs show up on his pitch mix at all. And this year, 18%, all of them, almost all of them at the expense of the four-seam fastball. Is the introduction of the split-finger something that has to be, obviously it has to be considered, but how do you consider it? Well, it's... Almost any splitter is not going to be a strike called strike. Like, if, if they just throw them, you're just going to sit there, and they're all just going to kind of get in the dirt. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of them. So it's probably not his gains with walks, but it was definitely part of his gains with strikeouts were coming from that splitter. I mean, if he's had a, a, a couple other fastballs. He throws four seam in the sinker and then a kind of a decent slider. But that one just kind of gives him that strikeout once he's ahead that he can just throw that in there and just get that swinging strike. So it has been a, a help with his strikeouts. Um, but I, like I said, it, it's one that's not going to help anyone with walks. Like if that's the, their only pitch and that's what they keep throwing it, that's where a lot of um, left-time single ball or, or the split-finger guys get in trouble because it just rarely is a strike. But as you said, the advantage might be he's getting more swing and miss from this new pitch. He's getting ahead perhaps more quickly, and he's not throwing enough pitches to get walks as he used to. Right. And and, and like I said, yeah, that's one of those deals where it's kind of tough when they do it. But, you know, when they change one thing, how does it affect everything else without really, really digging in? But overall, the results were great. I mean, um, it's going to be interesting to see if he gets devalued where he kind of ends up on um, valuations next year. He, I could actually see him be a sleeper or he could still kind of be overvalued. It's really tough to tell where he's going to kind of end up. And then there's going to be, I think like one thing um, with him is a lot of people will see the PDs and they may not want him on their team for that reason. I'll kind of see it, but where there'll be a group of maybe 10 pitchers that he's equivalent to or that people may want to take around then, and they're like, oh, Montas has had PDs. I'll take someone else, like, just to clear their conscience, and he might be the last one of those 10 to go. Even though he's probably valued the same, people are like, well, I'll just push him back for this reason, move him down. And you can kind of see that happen with other players that have had issues in the past that it's like, 
they'll just get pushed down at the bottom of their tier so people can keep a clear conscience. Well, I was going to ask you about that because I think it was Van Lee, your host uh, on the podcast, who said about the ethical issue of PEDs, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically what he said is if you want to win your league, then these kind of things can't matter to you. And I think I agree with regard to PEDs, but the case reminded me of a discussion I had a couple of weeks ago with Nando DeFino of The Athletic about domestic violence guys, Odubel Herrera, Roberto Osuna, these kind of guys. What room is there in fantasy, as far as you're concerned, for considering that kind of behavior of players we choose or don't choose to roster? It's horrible. Um, it, I, I actually ended up with Azuna in way too many leagues, and I think it was for this reason, is that people were like, well, I just don't want him. And he was just kind of falling and becoming a kind of a decent value. I mean, he was on a good pitcher on a great team. He was going to get saves. So I think that that people are like, well, I just don't want to have to deal with it. You kind of saw that with Chapman when he was having his issues. It's just like, well, even though he's good, we're going to kind of take him last. Like someone's going to be like, well, you know, I just have to win. For me, I think the league, if there's any um, thing that's like, we're just going to ban these guys. Like we're just going to remove them from the pool the year after they'll they may have it. Like, you don't want to hose an owner over during the season. You probably got to, you know, dealt with a suspension or whatever. But I think that's the only way you have to do it. If you have to do it at the league level, it's like, Hey, we're just going to remove these guys or else someone, like I said, it's just someone will have less morals than someone else in the league. And that's just tough to deal with. So, um, that's the only thing I've ever, there's the only way I could kind of see handling the issue. I know one league where they do do that every year. It's tough because it's a keeper league in this instance. And, you know, if you're halfway through a, a low-priced Roberto Osuna because you picked him up back in the day, and all of a sudden the league says, hey, let's let's uh, eliminate Roberto Osuna from the player pool. The guy who owns him and he's halfway through says, hey, wait a second, you know. But in, in, the, in that particular league, they don't do that. It's only when guys are free agents. And they go through and they just have a list. And they say, okay, here's the guys we got to vote on. And then they have a vote. And if the league says, okay, we're leaving them out, then they get left out. And if they don't, then, then they're fair game. At which point you still have a personal decision to make about whether you want to roster a guy in that circumstance. So you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs, Rotographs. And uh, Jeff, you guys also discussed the Dodgers rotation on the Launch Angle Pod. And you focused a bit on the right-hander Tony Gonsolin. I don't even know how to say that name. Uh, he was recalled for a spot start last week. But as part of the discussion, you and Rob uh, talked about wanting to see him pitch rather than relying just on his stats. What would you have been looking for in that in that process? Um, the one thing I always find is the minor league or any scouting reports have changed, especially we're halfway through the year. A guy could have lost a lot of velocity, could have gained a ton. It's, I mean, you can get that the next day, but it's also kind of like, I always grab if there's someone, grab his preseason profile and be like, is this the same guy? So if he comes up and it's um, changed or anything, like, oh, I should maybe boost this guy up a little bit. Um, one guy I'm going to talk about later, um, Voth for, um, he's with the Nationals. His velocity is up like three miles an hour. So like everything else is going to play up and, I think that that really 
you know, a lot of people are still locked into their preseason notion of what that player is. And it's like, and it can happen with like Montas, like, wait a second, he's throwing the splitter and it's not listed as part of his profile. I mean, that changed at the beginning of the season with Montas and it can change with these guys. So I think a lot of the information we get right now is dated. Maybe a lot of the top 10 players, you know, people have seen that they've gone out to see, but it's kind of these lower guys. It's like, is what we expected what we're seeing from the guy. And that's as far as pitch mix is concerned. What about, uh, are you trying to eyeball the effectiveness of pitches to see if they, if what your eyes tell you belies what the stats tell you? Yeah, and you can definitely watch that to see if they're missing. Um, if there's some pitch that they're on. Uh, I don't so much deal with that. I mean, it's really tough to say in one game. You can definitely see, oh, they're missing his slider, and does that kind of jive with what it, you know, what the scouting reports are. Now, like I said, I really trust that people did a lot of good work over the season, but it's just what has changed. So I, I think that's more of what I'm looking at is trying to see what's changed. And then a lot of times it's like, I'll take this player that's come in and it's like, who is he like in the majors? And it's like, oh, I think he's like done. Is he ownable in my league? Well, sort of, you know, depends on the matchup or whatever. Or, oh, yeah, this guy's owned across the board. He has the same kind of pitch mix and everything. Maybe I should own him now and just see how things work out. Maybe he'll play up. Maybe he'll play down. But it's kind of using a little bit of comps. It's like, okay, he's got a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, you know, with a big curve. You know, in a slider, it's like, on the left, it's like, well, Clayton Kershaw. But, I mean, not everyone's Clayton Kershaw, but it's like you can kind of put these things together and kind of find the same similar picture and see if they're usable. Yeah, I think you you mentioned the the danger of trusting like five innings that you see with your eyes over all the data that have been compiled at the minor league level now increasingly, but also by major league analysts and so forth. So I think there's a real importance of finding a balance here and not letting your eyes fool you into disbelieving some pretty valid statistical evidence. Yeah, and the one thing I'm I'm a little iffy about that you don't sometimes you get is the minor league numbers, they may be working on something. And you'll, and you'll hear it from a guy like, hey, he was trying to throw his change. He got his change work in the last two games. You can see that. But sometimes you don't hear that. But the other things, like sometimes watching that game, the, especially with the home broadcast, I try to get theirs, is they may went and talk to the guy and talk to the pitching coach and try to get some information to try to make the broadcast better. And they may have gotten that information, and you can get that from them. It's like, hey, you know, he's working on his changeup. He finally got it going the last three games. Look how great he was doing, and then they brought him up. So, you know, he may have struggled with his walks for the whole thing, and that would be part of his stats. But when he came up, it was like, well, it's no longer an issue because that's been corrected. I agree with you about that, and some broadcast crews are better than others. I find that the local ones are way better than the uh, than the uh, network broadcasts, although sometimes they're good as well. And the radio broadcasts sometimes are really good because they have more airtime to fill. They can't just let the picture speak for itself. And so there's uh, somebody in the booth will mention and start talking about that in some detail. Yeah, it's it's so tough to figure out. You know, did they what they found, what they didn't, and um, so. It's, you're just trying to get what little information you can from a game. And, I mean, not everyone's a trained scout, but you can kind of go in there and it's, just kind of get yourself an idea of what it is. And don't look at the results. Like, look at his pitches, um, kind of look at his mix, 
yeah, see how he's kind of dealing with righties and lefties a little bit. But like I said, if he happens to give up a home run, you know, some lucky one like that, don't, don't worry about the run scored. It's just kind of see what his profile mixes and how he kind of compares to other pitchers. The Gonsolin discussion turned quickly to what I thought was a more important discussion about Julio Urias and the potential that he could really create some excellent value, but it depends heavily on how the Dodgers deploy him. In that discussion, where did you guys find the value opportunity that we need to be watching for with Julio Arias? Um, it quickly disappeared. Um, him and Ross Stripling were piggybacking, and Stripling went ahead and made his start, and Urias didn't like piggyback him, so he wasn't able to come in, get the second half of the start, and kind of get the win. We thought that it was going to be a piggyback, but it, it, I wonder if they're just trying to stretch both of them out. Like, they gave them some limited innings, and it's like, these are two of our better pitchers, especially with Rich Hill out. We're going to go with them and try to get them built up to make it through the season. The deal with Urias is, I kind of think they still may try to wait. He just hasn't ever thrown. I mean, his rookie season was when he threw his, his most innings, major league innings, was 77. Um, this year it's the second most in a while, so it's he's really just not thrown much. He's just kind of dealt with a ton of injuries, but he's been effective, and he's also 22. I mean, most of these guys, other rookies are coming up that are older than him, and this is you know his fourth year in the majors. So I think they made, I don't know if baby's the right term, but they're going to have him around for a while. He's young. I think that they're just, still want to see what the most they can get out of him. If they can get some Cy Young-type seasons out of him, I mean, he's shown the potential. I, I think they want to. But someone like Ross Stripling, I mean, he's 29 years old. I mean, you, you just have to give him the innings and get out there and throw because, I mean, that's what, I mean, he's he's kind of just more of a veteran at that age. And, well, if he can't throw it by the time he's 29, there's just no way that, I mean, it's just not going to happen. I think this piggybacking idea is still interesting, even though it, it may turn out that the Dodgers don't do it with Ross Stripling. But I think there's a p possibility here that depending on what hell happens elsewhere in the Dodgers rotation, they're a pretty smart organization. And I think they must be looking around at the opener idea. And I wonder if they're seeing Urias as a guy who could benefit from maybe being the the bulk guy or whatever they call him now, the guy, the follower guy who comes in after they get a, an inning or two out of the, out of the opener. And therefore there might be some value there in, in wins because they're a good team. Rice is a good pitcher. If they could get him in there for three or four innings at a crack in innings, three, four, five, six, rather than one, two, three, four, that all of a sudden there's a value proposition there that we might uh, not yet appreciate, but they might still try to do. Oh, I think there's, there's a great chance for him to do that. And I wonder if they're kind of picking their spots now um, with him, that it's like, all right, this pitcher's gone for a while. He's got some innings underneath him. Just go out and you just finish the game. We save our bullpen, and um, we get great production out of you, and then, you know, we can just move on from there. And um, But, he, yeah, I mean – He's definitely, as a look, in five of his last games, he's thrown over three innings, or three innings is what he's done. One other time it was one inning. So he's no longer kind of just a reliever. I mean, he's coming in and giving some bulk 
innings during that time. He's gotten a win. I mean, his strikeouts are crazy or during that time, especially as a reliever, are nuts. So I think he hasn't even allowed a run in about six or seven games. So I think he's really good. It's it's how much are they willing to use him? And I kind of, like I said, I really think that they're just kind of holding back right now, and they have an innings or they have a number of pitches that they think he can throw, and we're going to see it like in August or September. It's He's just going to get ramped up, and they're going to use him in the playoffs. Like I said, I think he's one of their better arms, and they're just going to have him you know, to go maybe even more than three innings, maybe twice through through a lineup. And then, because I just don't think they trust their bullpen. I mean, besides Jansen, I mean, who do you really trust there? So he may be one of those ones like, oh, the guy struggled or it's a close game. We pull him out. We put Urias in, and he finishes it off. Or they do piggyback. I think that could be a great way for um, they, they to have someone to go and then switch hands on him, you know, throw a righty in, and then go to the lefty and just kind of just dominate and, and just really kind of stay out of that bullpen because it's just really not a good bullpen. Always the possibility that they could acquire some bullpen help as well through the trade market. But I'm curious about this uh, idea of the usage model, uh, uh, this piggybacking model. We, we have kind of an opener and follower, opener and bulk guy uh, model that we're seeing in use. But a few years ago, uh, I'm sure you remember the Rockies tried the piggybacking model where they actually went to two guys and said, you guys are going to pitch together every five days in, in limited innings. And the problem was it didn't work because the pitchers weren't good enough. They just didn't have enough good guys who f- who fit the model where, you know, we like you as a three-inning guy, we don't like you as a six-inning guy, but we like both of you together as a six-inning guy. How likely is it, do you think, Jeff, that uh, at some point teams are going to start looking at, at guys who fit that model and deliberately putting them together because it seems to provide a certain amount of innings control, it provides a certain amount of role control, that is, guys like being on schedules rather than, than sort of being, you know, five days rest here, seven days there, three days there. It seems like it has a lot of advantages, but because it didn't work that one time, nobody's using it. Um. I think one issue is what the Rockies ran into is the lack of good starters. I mean, even the Rays, once you get someone hurt, I mean, they've been kind of, you know, been using the second starter or um, the long man or whatever. And it's just like, well, we don't have really legitimate starters, so we have to kind of use someone else. I mean, someone like the Dodgers are one of the few ones that have some, you know, depth in starting rotation. I mean, they're always seems like some guys hurt or so forth, and that's kind of why they have them all. But I think that that's kind of the key is who really has kind of two, you know, two starters that can go, you know, twice through the order to get through the whole game. Most of them are using them as their starter and just hoping their bullpens hold up. So I think I think it's possible, and especially during the playoffs, like um, even the Astros did it right with um, – I can't even remember what that game was. It was like when they threw like 80 curveballs throughout the whole game. It was two of them. The Colors was one of the guys. might have been Peacock. And they were just like, well, you two are out there. And they just dominated the game. But it's just, I think throughout the grind of the season, you just have to have those starters. And I don't think a lot of teams have them. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that's what makes me believe that with starting pitchers who can go distance becoming in more and more short supply, the teams are going to be forced to look at these kind of hybrid guys who have the terrific skills, the the strikeout ability, and so forth. 
but only for limited amounts of time that are somewhat longer than what we'd expect from a reliever. So are we want our relievers to get four or five outs. Maybe we're talking about guys who who can't get 21 outs, but who can get more than five. And, and if they kind of figure out a way to team them up in some kind of hybrid or, or uh, uh, connected fashion, they could start to figure out ways to maximize the, uh, the utility of their pitching staff without having to say, I need a five-inning starter and then I need four one-inning relievers, but I need that six times a week it's starting no wonder we're getting 13 14 man pitching staffs and maybe they could figure out a way to shorten their pitching staff by finding more more three inning guys and fewer one inning guys yeah and like I, said, I think it's just so much by the team i mean i was a kansas city fan and it was just when they had that lights out bullpen of every bad closer right now in the majors was part of that herrero davis <laughs> and um Holland, it's like none of them are good anymore, but it was like when those three were in an order, it was just like you got to the sixth inning, get game over. I mean, it literally was that way. So I think it's whatever the team has. I think they just have to be I'm inventive and go with it that way. And um, it, it's going to be interesting. Teams aren't so locked into this is, this is how we have to operate. And I could see where like when teams like, oh, we got two guys that are that way. Um, Eovaldi was one I always thought was kind of that way, maybe even Michael Pineda, where it's like, well, you don't have a lot of pitches, you can get through the inning twice, and then we're just going to bring in maybe another guy to be the long man. It's kind of getting someone to buy into being the long man, I think is part of the problem where it's like, well, you're not going to start, but we're going to have you throw a lot of innings, and then they're all worried about their arbitration. I think you kind of have to go get a veteran to like uh, have his contract set. It's like his... Money isn't set on how many wins he gets, how many starts he gets, all this stuff. It's all based off of, I mean, he's got his money already, so he can do whatever he wants to do. I think those are the guys you're going to have to kind of get to buy in is maybe some some veterans and, you know, they haven't started their whole career and it's just giving them a chance to extend it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned uh, Michael Pineda. The Twins seem to be doing this a little more, intelligently with guys like Jake Odorizzi, who's always had that third time through, just a horrendous third time through penalty. And they seem to have realized that what we got to do is get this guy out, you know, as soon as possible after his second time through, and then we'll turn the game over. And once, I I just think that there's going to turn out to be a lot more pitchers who can do that than we currently understand. There's going to be a lot more relievers who could throw more than one inning if somebody just said, hey, could you throw more than one inning? And there's going to be a lot more failed starters who fail because they can't get deep into games, but who could still be useful at that, you know, two and a half times through or three inning kind of role that we're talking about. And Jeff, if that happens, we're going to have to some real value rethinking as far as fantasy considerations, especially given the way we score the game in in rotisserie now. Yeah, and it's it's I actually like the game changing. I mean, some people don't, and you know, like with the starters and so forth. But it's like it it kind of stagnates at times, and it's like this whole how the pitching's working is interesting. Where it's like you have to go kind of figure out who's starting, and you know, at Tampa Bay, and see who's that starter, or if they're even before Hater became awesome, it's like wait, this guy's throwing like six innings every week, and it's elite numbers. It's like, I've got to own him. I mean, those you're not getting these kind of strikeouts from just a normal pitcher. Like, this guy has to be, you know, rostered on my teams, even, you know, without getting saved. So I think, like I said, I love how the game is right now with, like, the pitchers. The hitters, there's just not a lot of choices. There's 
I think there's some stagnation there. But with the pitching landscape, I kind of like how that's kind of changed the game and how we play it. I do too, and that's why I like when teams like uh, Tampa in particular, but a lot of teams that are getting younger guys in the front office, younger new managers who aren't afraid to say, I know that's the way we've always done it, but it, with the way we've always done it isn't always the best way. I was looking at uh, Odorizzi, I mentioned him, and in 2017 he had uh, something on the order of 26 or 27 innings uh, as a third time through guy, then in 2018 he had 28 such, and this year halfway through he's got 15. So he seems to be on that same kind of path. So maybe uh, the idea that they're treating Jake Odorizzi differently in, in, in Minneapolis isn't quite as uh, cut and dried as it seems. Yeah, and some of those times it's like they just got him in such a bad order. I'm. I think it's really tough to just tell that guy like we can't do this, but it's it's just working out all the time that it. It just not working. I mean, the guy just gets lit up, and um, I know I've talked to the coaches where it's just like it's so tough to tell the guy that, but it's just like the guy has to perform, and maybe they tell him it's like, hey, here's your chance to go out there, and can you perform? You know, you say you can do it a third time, and he gets lit up. You, you know, have him come in. It's like, hey, dude, I thought you said you could do this. You know, type of thing where he just, you know, you may have enough of a lead. And they may have been, the Twins seem to be a little bit smarter organization now than they used to be, but they may be doing it against, like, the Royals or the right. Tigers or Indians. You know what I'm saying? Like, against, like, bad lineups. Instead of, like, oh, if he's, you know, doing great against the Yankees twice, and it's like, oh, you know, it'll keep going. Like, no, you're not getting a third time to the Yankees. Or, like, no, just sit down type of thing. I haven't looked to see which teams it was that he's um, gone long about. Or, you know, had his extended stays with. And the, my, my last thought about this idea that you're going to have a hard time convincing pitchers to go along with it, I can see in the future at some point uh, a front officer or general manager saying to a pitcher, you know, you've got two choices. You can pitch seven innings five to- uh, every five days in uh, Altoona, or you can pitch three innings twice a week in you know, Baltimore or in the big leagues and the paycheck difference alone might be enough to get a lot of these marginal type guys. I mean, nobody's suggesting that Max Scherzer is going to be in this, in this boat or Chris Sale or any of the established stars, but there's, I think there's going to be a lot of pitchers who say, you know, if three innings twice a week is my role at the major league level versus regular starting at the minor league level, yeah, count me in. Yeah. um, It's, it's, it's true. Like, I think anyone wants to be in that major league level. And I think the one thing that they've been doing great is, or better is in the minors, like you don't have these rules. It was kind of like when the Rockies did it, but it's like your role is going to be in flux. And if you can kind of get guys used to that and they can see it happen in the majors and be like, well, this is how I'm going to get myself in. I think that's great. I think everyone, there was still just a ton of, you go out and you throw as long as you can until you've hit 100 pitches, and then we're going to pull you. I mean, that was the model for 20 years, and that model's just changing right now, and I think it's just slow to kind of get some people to adjust to it. 
That's right. And it was hard to get people to adjust to the idea of a closer back in the day when, when Tony LaRussa kind of introduced the idea and gradually the whole the whole system says, you know what, there's something going on here that makes sense. And then you mentioned Kansas City with that six plus relievers model that some teams ad- adopted as well. If somebody has the guts to try it and it turns out to work, then everybody says, hey, now I'm covered. I can explain to the media and I can explain to my boss why I'm doing it because it's been proved. It's not like I'm the guy going out on a, on a limb. And so now what we need is guys willing to go out on limbs. And I think that's going to be the Tampas and the Oaklands and the, you know, the underfunded teams who have to figure out smart ways to get things done because they can't just, you know, go out and hire the top three starting pitchers and plunk them in their rotation at $40 million a year apiece. Yeah. And, I mean, that's kind of what's happened with Kansas City. It's like, well, we kind of lucked into some bullpen arms, and it's like, well, okay, now we, we don't have to have as great as starters, but I, I think you'll see it happen at the lower ends. Of, yeah, like the Tampa's. Like, Tampa's perfect. Like, they're innovative, and they have no money. So anything we're going to see is going to kind of happen with them, I, I believe. Or, you know, lead teams like that. Yeah, Oakland. Um, I think, like, L.A., yeah, some of those, the top teams, like, they can just kind of buy their way out of it. Like, oh, we're just going to go get another starter. Like, I think Houston's going to go get another starter. So it's like, you know, the the other teams just can't do that. And even a team like the Dodgers, to give them their due, and Boston, these are very well-funded teams. But I think because they got younger in the front office and smarter, the guys who own them tend to be these financiers, these guys who have great respect for data. I think maybe the ownership and the general manager through the ownership is going to be a little more accepting of an idea if the idea is presented to them in a way that says this gives us a competitive advantage even though it's out of the box. I I think Boston has done that on occasion. The Dodgers certainly have. Even the way the Dodgers were finagling the 10-day IL. And everybody said, harumph, 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 this is no good. And then all of a sudden everybody goes, hey, wait a second, what they're doing makes a lot of sense. And now a lot of teams are doing it. Yeah, that's right. It's I don't know why a lot of teams didn't. Like, I don't know if they were worried about getting in trouble with Major League Baseball. It's like, wait, it's just 10 days? Like, that's just skipping one start with a starter. Like, you need to give them a break. Just throw them on a, you know. I don't know why other teams, like, it took them so long. It just seemed like this obvious, like, problem as soon as I heard it was 10 days. And the 10 days was more for hitters than for pitchers. I kind of thought the best thing would have been, like, 12 days. Where this pitcher would have had to skip two starts to go on the um, I.L., so it's like with 12, it's like, well, he's got to kind of skip two. It's going to be kind of iffy when he comes back. So I think that might get rid of some of the finagling of it. It's just up it a couple of days to kind of get him out of the rotation a little bit. But otherwise, yeah, it's like they change the rules. People are going to find a way to abuse it. And it's those teams that get the advantage a little bit quicker are going to have an advantage. And I'm not even sure it's abusing the rules. I think it's a a smart application of them. And maybe maybe what Major League Baseball could do is say, we're going to have two ILs, two IL minimums, 10 days for hitters, 12 or 13 days for pitchers. And that solves the, the two problems, which are related to the fact that hitters need recover you know, more quickly than pitchers do often, and they should be allowed to come back and play. I, I, I think what what baseball needs to do as a, as a game, but also the teams within it, is figure out how best can we get our players back on the field and ready to go. And, and if that means getting them back 
at top form by letting them rest for a week, you know, these kind of Kawhi Leonard or, or LeBron James week off uh, by faking an injury or whatever, so be it. I, I don't see it as a, as a big problem if it means that through the year I'm going to see those Dodger pitchers or those other starting pitchers more often and at a higher degree of excellence. Oh, I agree. I, I, I don't disagree with what they're doing. I just, just kind of wish part of the problem is the whole they got to be on the 40 man or they got to have options to get sent down to the minors and so forth. But I just wish there was like, they'd have like two reserve slots in the matrix. Like we're still going to pay you your slot. You're just not on the 25 man roster. It, I don't, I think teams would still kind of abuse that, but I think that there could be something like that. that you would have just two slots where the guy doesn't get hosed over. You know, like I said, he's still getting paid. They don't have to like release him, but they can just put him over there and it may only be for like 10 days or like the max amount of time they can have there. But it's just like, you know, let's just give this guy a break. He's not exactly hurt, but, you know, we just want to rest him a little bit. Seems perfectly reasonable to me, but oftentimes what seems perfectly reasonable doesn't seem as reasonable to the people who make the decisions. <laughs> uh, Jeff, uh, this has been great so far. Let's take a break. Uh, we'll get you back in a few minutes to talk about some uh, injury situations, uh, maybe some lineup analysis. Uh, I'd like to ask you about Jose Ramirez, and we'll have your boons and banes. All right, sounds great. Jeff Zimmerman writes regularly for Fangraphs and Rotographs and podcasts weekly on the Launch Angle podcast. Jeff will be back a little later on in this show, but coming up our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Nick and Jock, next on Baseball HQ Radio. That ball hit deep into left center field. Wise back, back. Makes the catch! What a play! Wise makes the catch! What a play by Wise! Mercy! What a play by Wise! Under the circumstances, one of the greatest catches I have ever seen in 50 years in this game. Alexei! Yes! 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 History! Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report. And our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Some good injury news for the Rockies and Trevor Story owners this week, Nick. Uh, the team activated Story on Tuesday, and that was way ahead of the schedule that they had suggested earlier. They had been saying that we should expect him out until after the All-Star break. Instead, here he is back after barely the full 10 days. Uh, playing time today, coverage by Rob Carroll at BaseballHQ.com. The team also optioned right-hander Chichi Gonzalez, a pitcher, back to AAA. Obviously, Trevor Story goes right back into the Rockies lineup. But what are the other roster ramifications? of this whole story. Story last played on June the 19th returns to a 1748-294 line with 12 steals and 296 at-bats. Help permitting expected to be the Rockies shortstop virtually every day and a bat from his usual usual uh, number two position in the lineup. Uh, perhaps a surprise for now, Colorado has opted to retain infielder Garrett Hampson over 
starting pitcher Gonzalez, who gave up six earned runs in nine innings over two starts during his stay. Hepson had been expected to provide on-base and stolen base skills for the Rockies this season, uh, and really enjoyed his most productive stretch with Story was out, going eight for 29 with six runs scored and a pair of steals. So if he if he stays uh, on, the, on the roster, if he gets a little bit of playing time uh, with stolen bases at a premium, he could be of some value uh, if he can continue to get on base, even though the role his role may be very limited. The Playing Time Tomorrow features at Baseball HQ look at teams division by division with a bit more of a longer-range roster outlook. And this week, Alain de Leonardis wrote about the National League East. And an interesting suggestion here, Todd Frazier is looking good as a trade candidate as the Mets fall out of the race, which could mean more playing time for J.D. Davis. Yeah, Todd Frazier has been really hot since returning from his early season injury woes. 261, 342, 463 with 27 runs, 11 homers, 34 RBIs, one stolen base, and 203 at-bats. The underlying stats may quibble a bit with the results, but... Uh, a 90 hard contact index, a 98 PX, uh, 98 expected power index. But J.D. Davis has been retreated to the bench since Fraser was activated and has continued to produce in limited playing time. Season line for J.D. Davis currently reads 278, 343, 454, with 27 runs, 8 home runs, 23 RBIs, and 194 at-bats. Uh, compared really very favorably to Fraser in almost exactly the same number of at-bats. Because the Mets are trying to showcase Fraser as much as possible, Davis's opportunities have mostly been in left field, occasionally spelling the red-hot Dominic Smith. Well, Nick, when we look a little deeper into Davis's performance, we find basically league average on walks and strikeouts, 8%, 78%. Pretty healthy 108 hard contact index. That's the 85th percentile in StatCast hard hit percentage, but a disappointing 87 expected power index. So the question when I see these kinds of stats is, if Davis is hitting the ball hard, and he certainly appears to be hitting the ball hard, why is his expected power index so low? Ray Murphy pulled back the curtain on how some of the big Baseball HQ stats Sausage has made for his piece on Christian Yelich, in which he tried to make sense of the superstar's ability to defy, to defy expected power regression. Uh, in it, he noted Yelich's famously high ground ball, high line drive, and low fly ball rates and concluded that his expected power index was short-changing his power because that stat favors hard-hit fly balls over hard-hit line drives by a margin of almost 3-1. to one. Davis's 53-25-23 ground ball line drive fly ball percent is nearly a carbon copy of Yelich's 52-25-24 from 2018. The biggest difference when comparing their hitting performances is that Yelich hit the ball much harder, a 134 hard contact index. And should we expect him to transmogrify into Yelich with more playing time? I wouldn't bet on that. But it's possible that Davis could provide solid batting average, on-base percentage, decent home runs, a reasonable chance to beat his power projection as long as he continues to hit the ball hard. Nick, in another Playing Time Tomorrow column, uh, Baseball HQ analyst Dan Marcus looked at the National League Central Division and he noted that Lorenzo Cain is having a subpar season in Milwaukee and that might be because of another thumb injury previously undisclosed and that as a result there could be some movement going on in the Milwaukee outfield. How does Dan Marcus see this story shaking out? Well, even without, uh, without aggravation, Cain could see some extra maintenance days off for the injury, uh, a la team, uh, teammate uh, Ryan Braun. Uh, while Kane isn't likely to lose his job due to poor performance thanks to his defensive prowess and his veteran status, plate appearances may be open for the taking in the Milwaukee outfield. 
The most likely beneficiary is Bill Gamble in that scenario, and his power and speed indicators showcase the upside. 104 hard contact index, 134 expected power index, 108 speed. That could come through with more plate appearances. Uh, Tyler Saladino, uh, outfielder, infielder, has also appeared in the outfield since being recalled in late June, meaning he could also pick up extra bats as the new utility man for the club. And finally, reinforcements are available in the minors. Tyrone Taylor, Troy Stokes, Corey Ray, all potentially prepared to stick with the big league club. However, that trio really has struggled at AAA San Antonio, making it less likely they'll get a long-term cameo in, in Milwaukee this season. I really think that, uh, that Ben Gamble's a guy to look at. Uh, yeah, especially because of the speed, of course. you got uh, the possibility of some stolen bases there, and they're in such short supply. And, and when I look at Tyler Saladino, at least so far this year, he's just been pretty short, uh, nothing short of a disaster, uh, 100 on base percentage. He's only had 19 at-bats. But even if you look at him historically, he's never been a real top-quality player. He had a $9 season a, a few years ago, 300 at-bats. He batted 282 and stole some bases. Uh, but... Tyler Saladino doesn't look like the kind of guy you're going to gamble on in a mixed league. Yeah, very definitely. Not, not the kind of guy you want on your roster, I think. In the speculator column, one of our favorites, uh, columnist Ryan Bloomfield checked on this year's top rookies and he wanted to check in on how real their performances have been. Uh, he started with a couple of American League guys. He went, in, or, I think, in order of the uh, HQ 100. But we're going to stay in the National League and we're going to start with San Diego shortstop Fernando Tatis. Uh, listen to this. 337 batting average, 11 homers, and 12 stolen bases. And he started a little bit late and he had an injury gap that cost him the entire month of May. Sounds real to me, but what does Ryan think about Tatis? Well, what we've seen from Tatis is tons of highlight real plays, tagging to score on pop-ups to second base, scoring from first on a single, uh, and lots of fantasy production as well. He's made short work of Major League pitching. He's one of just three players with a batting average over 300, 10-plus 10, 10 home runs, 12-plus stolen bases, despite missing all of May with that hamstring injury. Uh, Tatis' 45% hit rate hints at a BA pullback, but his 265 expected batting average is really solid, uh, particularly given his power-speed combo. 160 power index, uh, 208 R speed as a 20-year-old. So the revised look like, at this point, the revised outlook on Tatis, the sky's the limit, despite some holes in his swing. He looks every bit the part of a 30-30 contender for years to come. Uh, with his speed upside in today's stolen base-starved environment, we can make a reasonable case that he has passed Vladimir Guerrero and Eloy Jimenez as the top rookie in the game. Another National League rookie that made Ryan's list is Brendan Rodgers of Colorado. This is not such a good story. He has not really shone in his opportunities, especially with story out of the picture. What is Ryan Bloomfield's prognosis for Brendan Rodgers? Well, it's a limited sample, but maybe it's time to downgrade Rodgers here. He he failed to take advantage of his mid-May call-up, has uh, gone homerless, batted just 224 in 76 major league at-bats, now on the IL with a soldier impingement, and his BPV is a minus 70. Um, as well, his uh, Rogers MLE skills in the minors leave a lot to be desired. A 12 BPV at AA in 2017, a 34 BPV, a 3 in the second half between AA and AAA last year, uh, and... Uh, uh, baseball HQ scouting analyst Brent Hershey came away unimpressed when he went to scout Rogers uh, in person. 
Yeah, it, it sounds like Brendan Rodgers is one of those guys we've all been waiting for. And every so often this happens, Nick. We have a, a top prospect. We're all excited about his potential, especially in Coors Field. And he just gets there and, yeah, you know, it, it's, I know baseball's hard. And maybe this is one of those situations where we have to kind of put Brendan Rodgers on the back burner and look for him to maybe muscle up a bit in the, in the minor leagues or something. But uh, it has been a disappointment, Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, very definitely it has. It's one of you, you keep expecting him to uh, to take a step forward, and it's not happening at this point. On the mound, Ryan Bloomfield mentioned a couple of guys, including Atlanta starter Michael Soroka, good Canadian kid, uh, a two thirteen ERA, a WHIP under one, and that's pretty impressive through fourteen starts. What is Ryan's analysis of Michael Soroka? Well, you know, what we've seen so far, Soroka was one of four Atlanta starters with a nine upside rating entering the season, and he has really fast-tracked that potential. Uh, his extreme ground ball tilt, a 57% ground ball rate, uh, impeccable control, 67% first pitch strike rate, 2.0 control, set a really firm foundation skill, skills foundation for, uh, despite a lack of strikeouts, only a 7.1 dom so far. So at this point, I think we we have to say he remains entrenched as one of the top young starting pitchers in baseball, but how much better can he really get? He's a pitching prospect with a history of shoulder issues, a marginal strikeout rate, while his uh, trifecta of good fortune, hit rate, strand rate, home run per fly has combined to drive these ace-level skills. So he's legit, but at this point, his keeper value might be at peak. Uh, this is a guy we can see coming down with an injury before too long. Uh, and, and a lot of good luck going on. Uh, if I were in a keeper league, I might be trying to move him fairly soon. I think what's really rem- uh, the, the two key things that you mentioned there in uh, Michael Soroka's case are the combination of unusual amounts of good luck, shall we say, with the hit rate, strand rate, and home run per fly ball rate. Uh, when, the last time I checked, his hit rate was down around 28%. That's usually around 32. His strand rate's almost at 80 for a starting pitcher. It should be closer to 72-ish, especially for a guy who doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. The strand rate is worrisome to me because of the lack of strikeouts. If you're talking about a Justin Verlander or a, or a Max Scherzer, you can expect that their strand rate is going to be higher because of so many batters just striking out and not advancing runners. But for a guy who's around 7.1 strikeouts per nine, as you mentioned, that's a concern as well, plus the injuries. I don't know. If I were in a keeper league, I think I agree with you. I think the the, uh, the time to make a move on Michael Soroka is now while he still looks so good. Yeah, very definitely. If I were, I would be trying to sell high if I were a Soroka owner in a keeper league, I think. In a, uh, you know, in a full season, in a one-season league, he might continue doing this the rest of the season. And of course, at the end of uh, at the end of June, he had some forearm tightness. Uh, you mentioned the shoulder issues. Yeah, I don't know. The surprising Reds, Nick, have been doing a lot of good work. They're very close in the very very tight National League Central Division, in large part because of their pitching. And of course, when we think of the Reds and that small ballpark, we think they're going to just bash their way into contention. But in fact, they've been pitching really well. So it's tough news for them that they've had to put left-hander Amir Garrett on the injured list. He has a lat strain. Uh, they recalled Josh Van Meter from AAA, but he's an outfielder. Uh, Tom Kephart is on the story for playing time today. How does this move on Amir Garrett affect the Reds' pitching staff? Yeah, Garrett has really excelled in a high leverage setup role with 54 strikeouts, 20 walks, and 37 innings pitched, uh, compiling 14 holes, three vulture wins in his 42 appearances. 
uh, a very useful kind of guy to have on your roster. 17% swinging strike rate, 62% first pitch strike rate. Uh, test to his dominance, though his 90% strand rate helps explain the gap between a 1.70 ERA and a 3.02 expected earn run average. It's hard to say how long he'll be out with that last strain. Uh, EliteBaseballPerformance.com, a training site, says four weeks minimum, sometimes as little as two weeks, but often six weeks or more. And it's an injury that's uh, prone to reoccur if the recovery isn't complete and fully complete before, before he comes back. Uh, we can say this affects Cincinnati because they now have literally no left-handed pitchers on their staff. Fellow left-handed reliever Wandy Peralta is also currently sidelined with a hip flexor strain, not expected back until late July. Uh, Southpaw starter Alex Wood is slated to begin a rehab assignment at AAA, could return in early August. Uh, Cincinnati currently is getting solid starting pitching. Wood could possibly be used in a relief role, particularly if Garrett is sidelined for a lengthy period. Yeah, this looks like a, a difficult situation for the Reds because, uh, it, and I haven't looked into it in any kind of depth, Nick, so I don't know, maybe some of their right-handed relievers are good at getting left-handers out. It does happen, right? It's not like it's a, a etched in stone that if you're a right-handed pitcher, you can't get left-handers out, and I'd need to look into that a little more. But you'd think under normal circumstances, the Reds are going to be interested in trying to get at least one left-hander, you know, a loogie, they call him, a left-handed one-out guy, into their bullpen for those kind of situations where they need that. Having said all that, uh, I'd just like to mention the idea of Amir Garrett's strand rate being a concern. This is the opposite of what we were talking about with Soroka. And that is he's got a, a 3.02 expected ERA, which is a run and a half almost above his uh, real ERA. And we credit that to a 90% strand rate. But strand rates are higher for relievers, first of all, because they can go all out. And Amir Garrett has a, a dominance rate of 13 strikeouts per nine innings, which is almost double what Soroka gets. And this is something that I think we have to maybe work as a as an industry to get our heads around that guys with these extremely high strikeout rates, a 90% strand rate might not be out of order. Yeah, I think you're right on that, Patrick. I think there has to be some, we, we need to figure out how do we account for strand rates for guys with higher dom rates. I think there certainly is, is we can expect a difference, as you've just said. We need to do the, the research to figure out how that factors into everything else that we that we calculate. And he does walk a few guys, which should uh, should affect the strand rate negatively because it, uh, you walk a guy, you're going to push a, a, another guy forward. If you, especially as a reliever, you come in with guys on and you walk a guy. Now they're all in scoring position and so forth. But his command rate uh, uh, command ratio of two point seven strikeouts per walk is pretty good, and I think that uh, very high dominance rate is is reassuring, shall I say, for Amir Garrett owners. Also a 52% ground ball rate, which means his home run per fly ball rate is down around 14%, which is good in that ballpark. Yeah, very definite. Those those things are extremely good, especially in that ballpark. Yeah, 27% fly ball rate as well. Nick, uh, thanks very much for helping us out, and we'll talk to you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD, how you doing? I'm doing well, uh, and of course, uh, 
notwithstanding the fact that there was a tragedy in Major League Baseball this year and it affected your baseball community down there in Southern California, the untimely passing of Tyler Skaggs, who was leading the club in innings, kind of a rebound year for him, and it almost seems a little bit uh, untoward for us to be discussing how he's going to be replaced and what's going to go on with the rotation. But the games go on, life goes on, and the Angels and fantasy owners have to make some decisions. So what is the situation in Southern California with the Angels? and with uh, how they're going to deal with Tyler Skaggs' untimely death? Well, the the game that was canceled this past week and the uh, upcoming All-Star break at least give the Angels some breathing room and a chance to reset the pitching staff. Uh, this tragedy obviously has all kinds of uh, ramifications, the least significant being what we're talking about here. The rotation had actually been viewed as getting healthier and ticking upward, but depth is still an issue with the Angels. And as you mentioned, Skaggs was leading the league or not the league, but the club and innings pitched. What it means is that rookies Griffin Canning and Jose Suarez are now likely rotation fixtures for the rest of the season uh, together with Andrew Heaney. Felix Pena has scuffled in June. He's been hit with some pretty poor luck, but those four look like the primaries going forward at least uh, immediately after the break. My guess is that the Angels are going to throw in some bullpen games and, and really try to manage uh, Cannings and Suarez's innings pitch for the rest of the season. It seems seems like now with this uh, and the Lastella injury, which we'll be talking about in a few minutes, uh, their 2019 chances have dwindled, uh, and they'll they'll probably be looking more toward 2020. In the meantime, you mentioned the possibility of bullpen games, maybe openers, that kind of thing. Uh, any other options that they have for that number five spot in the rotation? I'm thinking of Trevor Cahill, who's out in the bullpen because of some pretty awful starting, uh, and Matt Harvey. Good questions, and I see both of these names potentially used as as, as filler uh, later in the season to conserve innings pitch for the kids, as I've noted here. And of course, fantasy owners are going to want to stay away from both these names because they've been awful this year. Kale's actually looked looked much better in long relief than he did as a starter. So I think generally he's going to stay there for most of the rest of the season. He made most of his innings there. Harvey's still on the DL. He had a setback while ramping up from his back issues. And I, I don't even know where he is. I'm, I'm not sure how long before he returns. And uh, who else might you be looking at? guy I'm looking at right now who I think is a little bit interesting is Jaime Berea. Now, you wouldn't know it looking at his AAA stats, but check out his last three starts in Anaheim. The strikeouts are up. The walks are down. Uh, I haven't had a chance to see him pitch uh, in, in depth, particularly this last time out against Texas, but something's different. I need to do a deep dive. His key will be limiting the home runs, and the Angels' key will be keeping him from going through the order a third time, which they've done. They've only st- His last three starts, he's, uh, he's only pitched five in- innings each, but uh, he's been very, very good. Um, he's somebody, given the nature of pitching, that I might consider taking a flyer on. Yeah, I was actually looking at Jaime Berea based on those last three starts that you mentioned, uh, all five inning starts, as you mentioned, he managed to suppress the hits pretty much, three, three, and four. He uh, walked a couple of guys here, but he had a zero-walk game, getting some strikeouts, six, six, and eight in those five-inning appearances. That's not bad for for a young pitcher like him, and overall, he hasn't looked terrible, and the question is, Will they be restricting him to that kind of short start role, maybe even a bulk innings role after the starter? And if it was the latter, that is, if they bring him in in the second inning or the third inning after an opener has had a whack, uh, he could be in line for some extra wins, which he's much less likely to get if he's starting and only going five innings. I know five innings is the minimum for for a win, but it's 
the the short when you go that short, your wins are going to be in short supply. Yeah, that's a real good point, and I think they are going to limit uh, him to to five innings. Um, um, with uh, obviously with Skaggs gone, they're going to be counting on Berea both this year and maybe next year. I mean, they're they're limiting Jose Suarez to five innings. Um, I think the bullpen is going to have to shoulder a workload. Uh, for the rest of the year and that's not necessarily a bad thing the bullpen has actually been a little bit better recently so um, the angels could make this work and finish near 500 meanwhile the angels also took another blow last week Uh, you called it a gut punch at baseball hq all-star infielder tommy la fouled a ball off his own uh, leg and broke his right tibia he's probably out until at least september which could actually mean the rest of the year, depending because legs, legs sometimes don't get healed up exactly the way you want. Uh, La Stella, as we all know, was having a tremendous year, a career year, hitting 300. He had 16 home runs. Uh, it's a huge blow for the Angels on top of everything else. What do they do here with uh, Tommy La Stella maybe down for the count? Well, Estella had been sharing second base and third base with David Fletcher, uh, Fletcher and to replace him, the Angels called up uh, rookie Matt Theis to uh, make his major league debut at third base, and he's gotten the first two starts since this went down. Now, Theis was drafted as a catcher, a first-round pick uh, back in the Sochi years, but for most of his minor league career, he's been a hit tool first uh, first baseman. LA decided, or the Angels decided to move him to third base this season to take advantage of a good arm. And at the same time, uh, Thais has actually shown more power recently uh, than ever. I think he had nine home runs in uh, in the month of June. He, he walks a lot. So we're going to see how that works out. Yeah, I was looking at him as a power guy as well. Uh, Fletcher, I guess, is going to continue some kind of utility rotation type role. Yeah, he is. He's fallen off a little bit since uh, mid-June. I, I think this, the long season might be wearing on him. Uh, um, the, the one good thing LA has right now uh, is is versatility. They may not have help, but the versatility is good. Um, uh, now that he's struggling a little bit, uh, and Luis Rangifo has been charging, uh, really playing well at second base. He's hit 290 since the beginning of June. I suspect the Angels will be resting Fletcher a little more here and there. They've done it recently over the past week. Uh, and they'll uh, they'll see what they have in Thice for a little while. Over in Houston, Jock, the Astros suddenly have some issues in the back of their rotation, most notably uh, Brad Peacock going to the injured list with shoulder discomfort. Shoulder discomfort tours, you never want to hear about a pitcher. They've auditioned Jose Urquidy, uh, formerly known as Hernandez. Uh, that was under some difficult conditions in Coors Field. He looked pretty good. Uh, you cover the Astros for playing time today and playing time tomorrow. What's going to happen in that Houston rotation with all of these changes? Yeah, this all began with Colin McHugh's rotation struggles and then Corbin Martin's inability to take advantage of it. Uh, then after a couple of decent outings as the number five, Framber Valdez was really ineffective his next two starts and the, the Astros dispatched him to AAA. They didn't need a number five starter uh, uh, until after the All-Star break. But Peacock's issues are, are the most recent and, and the only positive right now is the fact that uh, is that Houston hasn't needed that number five. Uh, Peacock's going to return shortly after the break, but who knows? He hasn't been pitching very well lately either. Pitching poorly and a shoulder impingement or some kind of shoulder problem is not a combination that augurs well for him or for the for the Astros. So for the meantime, they've got a number four spot open with Peacock out. Is Rikidi Hernandez, whatever you want to call him, is he now entrenched as the number four until Peacock returns, if Peacock returns? Yeah, it looks like it. 
it, it looks like it. He's going to start the game against the Angels Sunday. It's the last game before the break. And uh, his numbers are really intriguing, particularly uh, when he got promoted to AAA. He had a 64 to 10 strikeout to walk ratio in 43 innings. Um, and he really kept runs off the board. A 2.89 ERA in the Pacific Coast League is is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, good reports on him. I, I watched him for a little bit in that Coors Field start. He hit his spots. Uh, wasn't a lot of, of life on his ball. He had good velocity, um, but obviously in Coors Field, the life is pretty much tamped down with that uh, that thin air. Um, I think he's going to, unless he gets hit hard, he has some rope, particularly because of what was once thought to be Houston's near-ready pitching depth, guys like Forrest Whitley and Corbin Martin and, and Bukakis. Uh, they're all struggling or injured. In fact, Martin now has a, has an elbow injury. He's not going to be considered any time in the near future. Apparently, it's uh, it's fairly serious. I still see the Astros being players in the trade market. They have Kyle outfielder Kyle Tucker, who would be playing on, on any major league team right now. Matt Boyd is obviously the big starting pitching name that's supposedly available. I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, the Astros all in on whatever starting pitching becomes available before the July 31st trade deadline. And they won't be alone in that. Uh, so the question will be, who are they willing to give up? You know, you start thinking, is Jordan Alvarez up for sale? Is, they've got some good young talent. Uh, just the question is how willing they are to to deal it. I, I was looking through Houston's organizational chart, Jock, and uh, Jose Urquidy's not in it, at least at Baseball HQ's top 10 organizational listings. This is before the season. Was He was doing much better in AAA than they expected? Well, he was down in Double A. He he came from the Mexican League. He's he's uh, he's 24 years old. He's no uh, he's no spring chicken. Um, just going to look at his minor league stats for a minute here. But you're right. He wasn't uh, he wasn't exactly uh, one of their top prospects coming up. He's been in the organization now since uh, since um, 2015. Um, he's been around for a little while. Um, his ERAs, his numbers are very, very good. A minor league ERA of uh, 3.00 over 297 innings. He's obviously made some adjustments as players are doing, and particularly pitchers nowadays. Um, and it's uh, it's brought him to where he is today. In Seattle, Jock, the Mariners have had to shut down their star outfielder Mitch Haniger from all baseball activities during his recovery from ruptured testicle surgery. Uh, Rod Truesdell's covers the story for playing time today. What's going on with Mitch Haniger? Yeah, it's a pretty big setback. The surgery was a month ago, and he hasn't even started rehab. He was doing some basic general workouts uh, till a couple of days ago. He was ramping up. He was hitting in a cage, taking fly balls. So there was reason for optimism. He'd be back after the break, and now he's told his doctors that the activities were causing him pain. They've told him to back off. Uh, there's no timeline here, so who knows? If we assume that it's going to be longer rather than shorter, what do the Mariners do about the huge gap that Mitch Haniger causes by not being in the lineup? Well, right now they have utility Dylan Moore getting most of the at-bats. If, if uh, Haniger's going to be out for a while, I don't see that continuing. Um, uh, Dylan Moore is is a weak-hitting utility, uh, um, 202 batting average as of July 4th and limited major league at-bats, league average power and speed. Um, I think everyone can avoid f- um, more. My guess is that they might bring up somebody from the minors or even try to make an acquisition as part of a trade. Uh, they've got Jake Fraley down in AAA. He's had a very good year, most of it in AA. Um, he's got everyday player upside. It wouldn't surprise me to see them start auditioning uh, guys who can help them a little more than Dylan Moore does. So I'd, I, I'd be keeping my powder dry on that one if I'm, a, if I'm a, uh, somebody who needs outfield help. 
In Chicago, the White Sox called up one of their top pitching prospects, right-hander Dylan Cease from AAA on Wednesday. They had a doubleheader that day, so they're allowed a 26 guy on the roster, and he did start the first game against the Tigers. Uh, Rick Green covers the Tigers and the White Sox for playing time today. Uh, what expectations should we have for Dylan Cease? Yeah, Cease's debut wasn't bad. He gave up, he, he, he pitched five innings, gave up four hits and three runs. He struck out six, but he also walked four. Um, after the game, the White Sox optioned uh, Carson Fulmer to AAA, so the implication right now is that Cease is going to be here to stay, and the White Sox don't have anything to lose in, uh, in making that move. Uh, Dylan Cease also got covered in Baseball HQ's daily call-ups report. Uh, the, the scouts do a terrific job analyzing every player who gets called up from the minors. What do the HQ scouts say about Dylan Cease? Well, they gave him a 9A prospect rating, and that's pretty high. It's it, Actually, it's very high. It's all-star level potential ceiling, but with about a 10% chance of achieving it, like most most prospects like that have. Um, Cease had Tommy John surgery shortly after signing with the with the. Uh, Cubs in uh, 2014. He threw over 66 uh, minor league innings in 2015, 2016, then another another 93 in uh, 2017 with just okay results. Uh, um, he got traded to the White Sox in 2017, um, plus, plus, plus 90s mid fastball, reaches triple digits, has natural sink. Um, very good plus curveball with 12-6 movement. Uh, what he doesn't have is a, is a reliable, a reliably effective third pitch. His changeup is average at best. Slider he's added this this year is a work in progress. Um, um, a a two-pitch two mix and injury concerns make some scouts see Cease as a future closer rather than a, uh, a starter. So he's going to bear some watching. Yeah, I remember reading about Dylan Cease and uh, the problem with the curveball, even though it's got tremendous movement, is that he has a little trouble with command. He can't get it in the strike zone as reliably as he probably needs to it for it to be a really solid pitch. And then those missing, uh, not nothing at all for third pitches, as you mentioned. Uh, he was in AAA this year. How did he look before he got called up? He wasn't really great on the plus side. He's he has a good ground ball rate, fifty five percent. He's got the twelve percent swinging strike rate near the top of the league. But uh, four forty eight ERA, one point five seven WHIP in sixty eight innings, uh, with a DOM below uh, ten and a walk rate of above four. Uh, kind of hard to look past all that. And and he really struggled in June. He had an eight point three one ERA uh, in five starts and. Uh, uh, long term, this is a premium arm for keeper and dynasty formats, but in the short run, particularly with a White Sox team uh, that's uh, that's kind of mediocre right now, um, you 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 have to wonder how much he's going to help you. Uh, he's he, he, he obviously there's a risk he's going to struggle early in his MLB debut and uh, and hurt your fantasy results while he works out some of the kinks. Finally, Jock, in New York, the Yankees' injury parade continues. Uh, Luke Voigt, who's having a really good year, goes to the injured list. He has an abdominal strain. There's no immediate timeline as to his return. I look at Luke Voigt. I see a 900 OPS. I see 17 home runs this year so far. So this is not an easy loss for the Yankees and for fantasy owners to take. Uh, Matt Dodge covers the team. Where do the Yankees go from here? Well, Mike Ford was called up to take the Voight roster spot, and he'll get a few at-bats versus right, right-handed right pitching. But based on the last we've seen since this happened, Aaron Boone is rotating players in and out. They, the Yankees do have depth. 
Um, obviously, the, they'd rather have Voight, but uh, new acquisition in DH, Edwin Encarnacion was uh, at first base for a game in a National League park versus the Mets. Uh, DJ LeMahieu has also been playing some first base over the past few days. He's moved over from third base, which has allowed Boone to get Gio Urshela's bat, bat and glove back in the lineup as well. I, I wouldn't anticipate that Ford's going to be up for very long, particularly if uh, if for, if uh, if uh, Voight, Voight comes back quickly after the All-Star break. I have to ask, because it was the subject of a, a Master Notes column I did a little while ago, does any of this player movement augur well for Clint Frazier? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I I don't understand some of the moves the, the Yankees front office makes, other than they've, they've always liked their veterans. Um, um, and... Uh, I, I, Clint Frazier, I, didn't even, I haven't even looked at his numbers as to how he's doing in AAA, whether he's uh, he's applying himself and uh, just trying trying to move forward. But uh, you would think the Yankees would try to get him into the lineup again at some point, uh, depending on their, their needs. Well, Clint Frazier's got a 735 OPS uh, down in the minors this year, which is not great. He was way up beyond that. Uh, I know in uh, Scranton-Wilkes-Barre at AAA, he's, uh, he's only around 725 or so. He was For, for a while, he was a 900-type OPS guy at the major league level. It's hard to say. Maybe he's just frustrated or something like that, but sounds like Clint Frazier's not uh, soon for the big leagues either. Uh, Jock, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we'll catch up with you again next week. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, part two of our feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs and the Launch Angle Podcast. But right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the GM's office, co-general manager Brent Hershey has observation and tips from the halfway point. In Facts and Flukes, Baseball HQ analyst Brian Rudd looks at five National League players, including Paul Goldschmidt and Anthony DiSclefani. And in the eyes have it, Baseball HQ scouting analyst Chris Blessing is off to Nashville to see two top Dodgers prospects, shortstop Gavin Lux and right-hander Dustin May. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. Fantasy market analysis by former big league GM Brad Coleman in the Market Pulse, and injury analysis in the Big Hurt. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day. We have daily dashboards and pitcher matchups tools, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. We have that expert content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs and the Launch Angle podcast. Jeff, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. You and uh, Rob Silver and Evan Lee had some concerns about Trevor Story coming back very quickly from a well-reported thumb injury, and the initial analysis said we would probably have to wait till after the All-Star break. It turns out he is back much sooner. What's your concern? 
I just don't trust the Rockies. Um, <laughs> I he may be it may, he may be a hundred percent. It it may be that way, but it's just one organization that has constantly just made baffling decisions on who they hire, who um, who's on the major league roster. They don't seem to like the younger guys any bit. I, I think just story may feel good enough at 80%. Maybe that's good enough to be back. But, I mean, you really don't want him to hurt it again. He, this was the same injury that kept him out for a while here recently in past seasons. So I think you just hope for him to get 100%. I just thought he would sit through the All-Star break. It's like, it's a few more games. It's an extra week. Why don't you just take a whole time, get it rested off, and we'll have a good start to the second half of the season instead of just being up there taking at-bats here for the rest of the week. So... I'm just worried about re-injuring it or getting 100%. And maybe, you know, during the All-Star break, he can get some rest and so forth. But I just didn't see why it was worth him playing the, you know, the few games this week when he could just try to get 100%. In fantasy, of course, story owners, and I'm one of them in the Fantasy Baseball Invitational, we didn't have to reactivate him coming into the, the week of his of his return when do you think we should activate a top guy like Story if we know he's coming back, but we're concerned that maybe he's going to be a little rusty or need to work his way back into form? I think with someone like him, you almost have to, once he's playing, I think you have to kind of roster him. I think, you know, it's the first round talent, maybe second, you know what I'm saying? He's a top 30 pick probably going into next year. That even if he's at, 80, 70%. That's better than probably your release, you know, your lower guys. Someone like Angleton Simmons that's coming back or Didi at the shortstop, like, you know, they've, they were hurt, but not that high. And they may not be, you know, rosterable if they're at 70 or 80%. So I think that that's kind of the, the gauge is kind of the player. Do you think he, like his full, you know, not full production, is it going to be worth it to roster him? I think if he comes back, um, I'm in a league that I have him with, and we didn't roster. I mean, I didn't roster him on um, this first half, but it's like an NFBC style, like the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, where you get the choice on Friday. So it's like, is he starting? I'll look at it. I haven't even looked. I mean, it's just one of those deals. It's like, well, I got to look at everyone that time, and I'll um, um, make that decision then. But it's, I just kind of think that that's what you kind of have to do. Um, but then, if you're in an AL only or an NL only league, you started in this week. You probably had no one that was even equivalent to like three games of his. Whoever your replacement was, I mean, those deep ones that are in count and labor, there's just no one on the wave of wire. There's no one that really on your bench that even competes with him as a part-time player. I mean, you're playing probably a lot of part-time players. I mean, an AL only, I'm certain Jordan Luplo, and if I let him out there, he's going to get picked up. I mean, he's good enough, but he only playing one third of the time. I mean, he's great production when he does it. So I think it's just kind of a lot of it is the league context. And uh, the ironic thing for me is my replacement for Trevor Story while he was on the DL was uh, Freddie Galvis of Toronto. And uh, on the weekend I read Story was coming back, and so I wanted to get that Sunday move in, and Freddie Galvis on Monday hits two home runs while he's on my bench, uh, of course. But you mentioned the fact that you don't trust the Rockies. If story were on the White Sox, for instance, they have a pretty good reputation for injury management, training staff, and those kind of things. Would you have felt more confident about Story's return, even though you felt like it might be ahead of schedule? 
Yeah, there's definitely teams like that, but I think that they, some of them make better decisions than others and kind of can step in. Um, I think, yeah, the White Sox are definitely one that would be that way. Um, and I, th- I just think, like, the management, like, the White Sox, are not the White Sox, the Rockies just don't state what they're, what's going on. I think, I think there's just a lot of people saying different things that the players kind of can say what they want, some of them, or the manage, you know, the GMs are, or is it the actual manager? So it's, like I said, I just don't know what's going on there, but I would have a lot more faith in the White Sox. While you guys were discussing some surprising players on the podcast, the Launch Angle Pod, uh, you said the reason we didn't see Raphael Devers' breakout coming was that nobody saw him cutting his strikeout rate by eight percentage points. And that made me wonder, is there anything we could have used or looked at to guess that such a strikeout rate improvement was possible or indeed on the way and assume the positive results that would flow? Um. I don't think so. It's it's really tough um, because it wasn't a crazy strikeout rate, and it was you know it wasn't one of those plus thirty ones. It's like well, he's going to have to improve it. A lot of times, I kind of like those guys late because there is room for improvement, and the improvement would be huge. But his was around twenty five percent. It was kind of in line with what he had done in the minors, so it wasn't something that's out of range. But I mean, he really hasn't had this low strikeout rate ever, ever. So, I guess, I mean, you, this is one deal where you can kind of read between the lines and be like, oh, he's trying to improve this, and maybe you would bump him up compared to the other guys. You haven't found something that they're trying to improve on. But, I mean, there's, a, like, Nomar Mazzara, he's been around for years, and, like, well, maybe he could have made an improvement. What, I mean, which one would have been different coming into the season? Nomar Mazzara's kind of, you know, had his, his set profile, and it's like, well, is he going to make an improvement? You really just don't know. Is, so it's kind of a tough one to figure out, like, preseason. And a lot of people try to watch it, but the hitters, I just find them that they're the toughest ones to kind of guess in preseason. Like, you can't see a velocity. You can't see a new pitch. Um, there's so few games against different pitchers that their plate approach, it's just really tough to tell. We don't have pitch FX for anyone, so you can't tell um, kind of on a granular level before it becomes in at, like, the box and strikeout rates. So... I think people just had to kind of luck into it. I don't, I have, like, when I look into it, it's just like, what decision could I have possibly made that would have pointed to him improving this way? You have the strikeout rate dropping from around 25% to around 16 which is a huge increase, uh, a decrease, I guess an increase in, in efficiency. At the same time this year, he's about plus 8 percentage points on line drives. And I wonder, of the two things, and they may be related, but of the two things, which one would you trust more on uh, looking ahead? I'd say I'd trust the walk rate. But, I mean, that could, I mean, the strikeout rate, but, I mean, that could easily, like you said, I, I've done some work, and I think that's related a lot of times where it's like he's not swinging at as much junk and waiting for balls in the zone, and he's just driving them more. Like, I, I think both of them can be related. A lot of times when you see guys improve their plate discipline, their results improve also. So I, I, 
I think they could easily be related. Like, he just came out with a new approach to the plate. And I think that's, like I said, you might have to dig in and see if there was some news about it. But there might not have been. And a lot of times you'll have people like, oh, I'm trying to improve my plate discipline, and you don't see any. So that's kind of a tough a tough thing to try to kind of find, you know, um, to try to find beforehand. I was like, we're just sitting there through the off season, and everyone, you know, kind of has their opinion of him. And he was kind of set through the, you know, couple seasons and had some issues or whatever. But this improvement, just tough to find. After I heard you guys uh, talking about this, I thought, I wonder what his plate discipline looks like, Raphael Devers. And in fact, according to Fangraph's plate discipline metrics anyways, he's actually swinging outside the zone more than he was in previous years, but he's also making a way more contact when he swings at those pitches. And I, I wonder, again, at the... At, at the same time, I look at a guy swinging more outside the zone, and I think that's not good. But if he's putting the bat on the ball outside the zone, that's that's less not good. But it still seems worrisome because we know that contact outside the zone tends not to be uh, excellent contact. So is he making that good contact and bleeding a few hits through here and there? Uh, it doesn't seem like he can be getting that many more line drives based on hitting balls outside the zone. Yeah, and he may have had, like, one place where he, um, I don't want to say, like, he was just had a big hole, like, low and inside, and anywhere in there, he just wasn't hitting anything inside or out. So he may have been like, oh, I have to be able to improve inside. Like, I didn't so much um, dive into him too much. The one thing that it's kind of, like, during the season – I have a problem where it's like, am I still going to own him either way? Like, I think he's owned in, he would, even if he was producing like he was last year, he was probably owned in every league, maybe some, maybe not some 10 teamers. If he was still doing that, but it's just one of those deals where it's like, well, I'm still owning him. I'm not going to bench him. Even if he's producing, you know, worse. So it's like, why am I digging in until something be kind of, until I start thinking I'm going to bench him. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I'm kind of usually, diving into more of the players that I'm might roster. Well, when I'm looking at it in season, I think that's exactly right. I'm, I'm thinking ahead more to the next season where you're starting to try to, to stratify where am I going to put Raphael Devers in the third base tier? You know, uh, obviously I'm, I'm not going to put him up in Nolan Arenado country, but at the same time, I may think, you know, coming into this season, I thought maybe, you know, a fourth rounder, fifth round or something like that. Do I have to promote him a full round for next year based on my belief on what he's doing with uh, with his plate discipline, the line drive figures, and so forth? I think that's a really interesting question. And uh, at that point, I think you do start have to go beyond the fan graphs t t style plate discipline metrics and start looking at the stat cast data, Brooks, and, and those kind of things to see where exactly is this guy swinging more at, where exactly in the zone or out of the zone is he making this extra contact? Yeah, and I think, and and that's that's I actually kind of love the off season stuff that way where you kind of get a dive into these guys and kind of start putting in the rankings. But um, I used to try to do that, and it was just like such a waste of time because it was like they were owned. It's like I've got so many guys to kind of get through. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it was a certain pitch. Maybe he's laying off. If there's something like right. that, um, 
just even kind of looking at it, they're throwing him a, not the same number of fastballs, so that's not really a, a change there. Sometimes that's the thing that it's like, oh, if he can't hit a fastball or he started hitting fastballs, that number will change. So, you know, he's definitely an interesting one, and I um, I think a lot of people will kind of gravitate toward him this offseason where it's like, well, if he's improved, and that's the other problem is a lot of times um, the prospect growth isn't, like, linear. Everyone always talks about that. He may, you know, people maybe find a weakness with him, he'll step back, or he'll just stay the same way. I'm, I don't know if I can really put in, he's going to take a ne- next step beyond this step. Like, this is still a pretty good step right here, and he's 22. Maybe there's a little bit more power, maybe he can grow into his body some, but is there another step to this, or is this his kind of max level? A few years ago, Jeff, I did a research report for Baseball HQ that identified the year you want to get a guy is the year after he hits 800 plate appearances in experience, and uh, that'll be this year. So it could be that uh, Devers has made a a leap forward based on experience. He's only 22, but he's got almost uh, 1,100, well, 1,000 plate appearances in the big leagues. That's pretty good uh, for a guy his age. And the track record of guys like that tends to be that if you get them – that year after they hit 800, that's the that's going to be the big year, which would be 2020 in his case. Yeah, and I can see it. It's, um, I mean, and the other thing is he kind of came in down at the bottom of the lineup, like there wasn't a lot of love with him initially, so he could definitely get more runs and RBIs as he moved up in the order, and um, it's pretty good. And he's given you eight stolen bases this year. That's huge. Anytime you can get ten from anyone is great, and. It, I mean, if he continues that and doubles it at 16, along with possibly 30 home runs, he'll probably be over 100 runs in RBIs. I mean, he's just going to be someone tough to ignore with those numbers. Oh, he's on track for way more than both 100 RBIs and and 100 runs. Uh, He's going to be, if he carries on, he's going to be huge. That's for sure. Uh, To the other side of the coin, and another third baseman, Jose Ramirez, I saw uh, online somewhere today that uh, somebody was giving out their bust of the year uh, so far awards, and Jose Ramirez won for the American League hitting. Uh, and at Fangraphs, you actually wrote an article about Jose Ramirez of Cleveland joining uh, a long and distinguished uh, group of people who've done so. But what were you looking for that hadn't already been looked for? Uh, my big thing was to see these guys that have really crashed and and that have felt, you know, just fallen off as much as he has. They were projected to be really great and just fell off. What what were their traits and were they able to rebound? And the deal was is most of the time there was some bad, bad at luck, which is not surprising, and they probably the year before had some good. So there was this kind of correction over correction with that. And a lot of times they lost a little bit of plate discipline from one year to the next. But it wasn't a crazy amount. It was just a little bit that helped exacerbate the problem. And a lot of them just kind of just lost their power, almost like kind of Joey Votto did this year. That it's just like, where is this power that what used to be there? And with Ramirez, he fell into those guys that just don't have the power anymore. I mean, everything else is not completely out of whack. I mean, he had that it's really not horrible like what you're thinking of it's just like he's just not hitting for any home runs so um i think that that's kind of the issue with him is like i'm kind of worried that it's, that it's he's going to bounce back i own him in tout wars and um, i'm not going to blame him i'm still 
in the top half of the league and, you know, still grinding away and just kind of hoping with him. But it's one of those deals I actually looked at him where it was like, do I need to drop him? I mean, that, that's kind of what I was thinking when I went into it. It was one of those ones where, like, a lot of times with Devers, I was like, well, if I have Devers, no matter what he does, I'm still going to kind of own him. But Ramirez was getting to that point, like, who do I have here? And I need to kind of, you know, come to the, – the, the bounce back may not happen. There may not be anything. And is he worth rostering at his current production? It's an interesting question for sure. I own him in Toad American League, and I'm doing well despite that fact uh, as well. But, of course, when you have a player like that, as we both do, you tend to be real interested in looking around and digging around in the data. And the one thing that jumped out at me when I did, Jeff, was, uh, and I understand age, age-related age development and so forth, but back in 2014-15 when Ramirez was establishing himself, he was a very low power hitter. You know, his ISO was around 100 uh, average between the two years, uh, 084, 121. And this year, his profile looks eerily like it did back in those days. And I wonder, is it possible that, you know, 2014-15 was a kind of a baseline, and then the the middle three years, 16, 17, 18, well, all of a sudden he starts really hammering the ball in 17 and 18, are somehow outliers that something went on there that he hasn't been able to sustain? That's what I was thinking. A lot of people have gone through a lot of, like, they've been changing the pitches around. He's been changing around a lot. Um, different approaches. I've read a lot of that, and it's like none of it seems to be working. I was like, oh, if he just changes this and this, and he sometimes has changed that and that, but he's still like not improved. So, I mean, when I looked at him, it was like we kind of have Billy Hamilton. There's a little bit more power there, but it's like a ton of speed. He can, you know, he's not hitting right now. He has done better over the last month. It's not total destruction of your. Um, Batting average leagues, it's even worse than it is like an OBP. I was like, thank God in Tout Wars, it's OBP where right. he's walking some, and at least the OBP is over 300. But um, I mean, when you're expecting, you know, 360 to 380 level, it's tough to, you know, to kind of stomach the 300 level. But yeah, I think, I mean, it, it is eerie. If you look at 2015, the, the numbers are almost the same. Um, he's stealing a little bit more this year, but that's about it. So I don't, I don't know where his talent lies right now, and it's kind of just been all over the place. Um, I didn't really expect 2018 again. I can, you know, even 2017 would have been great. You know, yeah. So I think that's where I was kind of hoping for when I drafted him, but it wasn't what I'm getting right now. During the discussion when you guys were talking about this, Rob Silver said. The why of the power outage is what he found really inexplicable, and I think you've touched on that. And then he made the point about rest-of-year projections and how the systems that generate those rest-of-year projections kind of don't work in a situation like Ramirez is facing because the projection is going to bake in the the, the excellent results from the past couple of years, even if there's weighting involved, and therefore they can't give the proper weight to his year-to-date stats because the year-to-date stats, as far as power is concerned anyways, are inexplicable. Facing all that, what is a fantasy owner to do? Um, yeah, this is, this is something I've been trying to dive into. It's like, personally, I think he's hurt. I think there's something in that nature, and it's affecting the swing. That's my story, and 
until I hear otherwise, like I said, he may deny it or whatever, but I think something's going to come out later. But he has to get healthier or better. So you're right. It's like, I think there are some projections, and I know Schemer has found that it's like, if a pitcher changes his velocity immediately, they change the projection. If he's throwing two miles an hour harder, they're like, well, guys that throw two miles an hour harder are this way, and that's like an immediate one. I kind of think we're a little bit behind in our projections on hitters where it's like, oh, some kind of stat cast measure or something. If this drops down to here, this guy's at a new talent level, and we need to adjust the projections quicker and not take all these seasons worth of data. But like I said, I think evaluating hitters, it's it's just behind the times. And um, I think that that's something that hasn't just, yeah, hasn't been incorporated compared to pitching yet. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs, Rotographs. And uh, Jeff, one of the really interesting articles you write at the uh, Rotograph site is a weekly analysis of uh, lineups in the American League, and you go through and point out batting order changes, uh, production changes, guys who are being replaced or you know, on the road to being replaced. It's a really interesting and useful thing for anybody who's playing, especially in American League only, uh, as I do. And one of the, I'd like to talk about a couple of these guys. You mentioned Bobby Bradley of Cleveland. He was a big fab target when he came up, uh, but he's been hitting down the order. He strikes out a ton, and you discussed him on launch angle as well. How should fantasy owners react, especially to these high strikeouts with Bobby Bradley? I, I think he, for me, he's a bench and wait. Maybe if you are just, an AL only, I think you have to start him. Um, maybe, you know what I'm saying? It's like where everyone's owned, he has to be that way. But um, when he's got strikeout rates north of 30%, in the minors, it it always gets worse in the majors. And I I haven't run the numbers, but it always seems like the guys that are over 30%, like it gets progressively worse. Like if a guy's at 20%, it may jump to 23. But if a guy's at like 30%, it might jump to 35. Like it's worse for the guys that are worse. Like they're seeing a lot better pitchers. They're not seeing their fastballs, whatever. And he's just not making contact. This was something that um, was a possibility. He's not hitting home runs. So he's right now, I just don't. I don't know if he's even rosterable right now because he's not giving you the home run help. I was kind of interested in him. There's a league I'd really needed some power in that was NFPC base where he came up on Sunday, so we couldn't roster him until the next week. And I was like, all right, actually, there was some bidding that was going on. I'm like, I'll hold my money back for him because I need some power. By the time that week went down, I was like, I didn't spend a dime on him. I mean, it was just like, I'm. there's nothing here. I'm not interested. I was like, happy that I didn't have the choice to even come up a day earlier and give me an opportunity to blow my money on him then. So I was, like I said, I, I dodged a bullet there, but I, I just don't think there's anything there. Just too much swing and miss right now. Yeah, strikeout rate is now over 40% at the big league level. Uh, you mentioned uh, something that a, a, a lot of people have been looking at in Texas, which is they've got uh, far too many outfielder DH types than they have room for. Uh, Chu, DeShields, Gallo, Santana has been playing well. Willie Calhoun got called up and Nomar Mazar, of course. And we have Hunter Pence due back uh, shortly from the injured list. Even with uh, Hunter Pence on the shelf two of these six guys have to sit in every game. How do you see the playing time situation shaking out over the second half? It's a mess. I'm, there, One issue is, is they really don't have 
a center fielder. So they've been kind of using Gallo out there. Um, the Shields, he's not a great center fielder, but he's okay. Um, even some games, they've, I think they started Chew, but he didn't go in there. But, yeah, it's like Gallows and Shields are borderline that way. Um, there's been talk that they're trying to move Willie Calhoun to second base. I don't even know. Like, he was taking some infield practice, so there was talk about that. Um, I really don't know. I don't know if they're going to try to trade someone, like a Struble Cabrera, and kind of open things up, but Logan Forsythe's hitting good. Even there, that that's kind of... I mean, they even have it in the infield where it's a mess, where Santana could play in the infield, but Ronald Guzman's okay. There's just so many bats. Um, I don't know if they actually believe that they can take a shot at the playoffs and who they could trade and what other teams would want. I don't know. I kind of think they don't believe it, so they're going to try to keep the younger guys. and Maybe they can move, just move some of the older guys to be bench spots on some teams. You know, Chu could definitely be helpful for a team if they eat a lot of his contract. Um, Forsyth and Cabrera could be useful. Pence could probably be useful for a team if they get him back healthy. But I think they'll kind of want to keep their younger guys and just hope for the best otherwise. But, no, I don't know what it is. I just, I'm looking at it right now, and it's a mess. Um, there's just no consistency across the board anywhere on this team, and Besides Andrews at shortstop, it's just a mess, and I hope it can clear up. There's so many of these situations right now in the majors where some teams are just putting out players that aren't good, and there's other ones that have above major league average players and that just have to sit on the bench. Yeah, you'd think that uh, a lot, almost all of it's going to depend on whether Texas sees themselves as being competitive in the, to make a playoff run. I, I don't know that if I was running the 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 Rangers that I'd look at it and say, can we sneak into that one game wildcard playoff game and make a whole bunch of organizational decisions based on that. But if they look at the situation, they say, Hey, you know, Mike Miner's pitching well, Lance Lynn's pitching pretty well. Uh, we only need three starters and a good bullpen. Uh, the bullpen's a little shaky too. I just don't think they're set up for a long playoff run, even if they can sneak into the wildcard game. And if that's correct, then they have to start looking at getting uh, value back, getting assets back for the Shinsu Chus of the world and maybe even the Danny Santanas, but certainly, as you mentioned, Cabrera and guys like that who aren't going to be part of the next playoff caliber Texas Rangers team. Right. Like I said, it, it just, it was really interesting. Like they took a lot of dart throws this year. It's like, okay, you know, is Pence going to work? Is Santana going to work? Um, is Cabrera going to work? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those deals. It's like, a lot of teams don't have all these hits, and it's just like, no one expected Logan Forsythe to be doing what he's doing. So it's so it's, it's just tough, and it's tough. I'm sure the team's like, hey, you're hitting great, and, you know, we have to bench you. And it's like, wait a second, what? Why? You know. So it, it's going to be interesting. I think that they're going to make – it's going to be, yeah, definitely interesting if they're going to try to make a run at the playoffs or if not, how it's going to go. And maybe it's just going to be one of those last-minute deals where like a week to go, they're like, oh, we're going to go for it and try to keep everyone or trade our guys off for pitching. Or 
but I think if they're going to try to get any pitching, they're going to have to move one of the younger guys. And that's why I said I think that's it's going to suck that they're going to get any in, impact pitching. Like they could trade them off for some minor league or whatever, but if they want some impact pitching, I think it's going to take someone like Willie Calhoun to get it. And heaven knows they've certainly not exhibited a huge amount of confidence in Calhoun over the years. Uh, you noted that the Yankees were batting Glaber Torres fifth for much of the season, but then starting in mid-June, they dropped him down to six, seven, eight most of the time. He does have a slightly higher OPS batting down the order, but his OPS in the five hole, I looked it up, was over 900, so he wasn't exactly killing them uh, batting fifth. How likely is it, do you think, that Glaber Torres moves back up the Yankees' order, and what opportunities there might be for his own to get a value bump if that happens. Um, Luke Voigt helped him a little bit by getting hurt, but that's only going to be for a week or so here, I think. Um, the Yankees are another one that it's just... They have a lot of riches on the team. They have some really good players. Um, here this weekend... I No, it's been recently. I was trying to think of, like, um, even Edwin's been sitting because... He, they're playing um, interleague play. It's, it's, they were playing the Mets, so he he sat one game. But it's just not. It's just really a good lineup. I mean, you can't move down Lemayhew. He's playing great. You're not moving Judge down. Sanchez has been hitting okay. Sometimes he doesn't, so he can move up. Um, and then, like I said, they lost Santon and Voigt, so those two on the DL kind of push him down. So. I think he has a chance moving up, but it's kind of tough to figure out who he takes the place of. So, I mean, it's these other guys that are hitting great, too. So I think he's around that 4-5, or five, and if someone gets hurt, he moves up. But until someone really starts struggling, I, I don't know how he gets any farther up than around fifth. Well, I think... As a Glaber Torres owner, I'll take fifth over eighth, just in, as a general rule. Uh, and I think there's a possibility there, and there could be some value if he keeps hitting a 900 OPS clip, even if it's not quite the 1070 or so he's doing in those other three slots. Uh, again, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman, Fangraphs, Rotographs, and the Launch Angle Podcast. And Jeff, as you know, during the season, I like to ask our expert guests to talk about players they think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. We'll start in the American League. Who's a potential boon hitter? Um, Renato Nunez, um, uh, Orioles. I've just found a lot of good value on the Orioles. Right now he has 19 home runs halfway through the season, 38 home runs. He's just really available in a lot of lineups. And kind of being a home run hitter, and that's all he kind of does, he goes through hot and cold streaks. Um, so, you know, if he's had a couple of cold weeks or maybe a lot of people don't have a lot of faith in him, you'll see him hit the wire. But he's going to outproduce a lot of them, and everyone at the end of the season is going to be like, how did he get here? And he's just playing every day. He's hitting a ton of home runs. So he's one that, if you see him kind of pop out on the wire, he's someone I would kind of grab. And the National League, who could be a boon hitter? Um, this is one I've kept my eye on. He's just not playing all the time. Is Tim LaCastro of the um, Diamondbacks. He has a near 400 OBP. He walks a lot. He actually gets hit by pitch a lot. And he's got a ton of speed. So if you're kind of looking for some speed, um, he's one that if he gets into full-time playing time, he's a fourth outfielder right now, is... There for a few weeks, he was even playing full-time. He gave some, 
um, owner's great value, is he could be a great stolen base play um, later in the season. Over to the mound in the American League, who's a pitcher who could be a boon? This one I hate to say, but he has just really changed around his um, pitch, pitch mix is Tommy Malone. Um, he's, his changeup and slider are borderline elite, the results he's getting this year. He's really just not throwing a bad fastball a lot and um, kind of doing the Corbin where instead of just like just the sliders it was with Corbin, is he just going with these two and not throwing his fastball? And that's just putting up the results. A lot of people don't really believe him. They're not falling for it. But if you just look at the strikeout rate and the walk rate, they're great. And like I said, pitchers can make these changes, and he's just done it. And like I said, he's just stepped away from that fastball and um, has just been really productive. And in the National League, a boon pitcher? Um, it's my boy Austin Vaught. I have been following him for a while. He's always just had kind of decent control and has kind of put up decent numbers. And this year he's just gained a couple miles an hour, which has been huge on his fastball in the minors. He had a 10 strikeout per nine, barely walking anyone. Um, he's a little bit home run prone, so it'll be kind of an issue. I mean, right now his walk rate and home run rate are both at 1.7. But this year... Uh, at least I've gotten that way. I don't know if a lot of people have. When you see a 1.7 and with someone that's only thrown 10 innings, it's like it's kind of like understandable because it's like every pitcher's had that game where they've given up three home runs. I mean, it's just with a happy fun ball right now. It just happens. And um, I was trying to remember who the pitcher was that had like 15 strikeouts and like three home runs. Maybe it was Verlander. And it's just like that's just this year. It's like everyone's striking out. Everyone's just hitting home runs. That's that's the game we're in. So. Um, I'm not as worried about the home run for nine, but if he's just striking out a lot of batters and not walking any, that's kind of the pitchers I want. Jeff Zimmerman's Boons, Renato Nunez of Baltimore, Kim Locastro of Arizona, Tommy Malone of Seattle, Austin Voth of Washington. Uh, let's move over to the Baines, Jeff. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious for the rest of the season. Again, let's start in the American League and a Bane hitter. This is one I like what he's doing. It's great. His owners need to keep track of Otani's rehab because it may really start cutting into his playing time later. Um, I'd read something that at least was going to be in September. Um, he's going through a progression with Tommy John surgery where he has to build up. He's not going to stop that right now. Um, I mean, he'll just lose all those games or whatever. So they're slowly building up. He's just playing catch in the bullpen. It's very controlled. It's with everyone. But when he, he there for the last month or so, he's going to be where he's going to be throwing three innings. He's going to have to rest. He's going to sit. So if you're in a weekly league or whatever, just kind of keep track of if he's – there might be some weeks where we'll kind of get to know it a little bit better where it's like he has his rehab start where he throws and he probably has to take the day off just like he was when he threw to recover. And if it works out, he may be sitting four days a week depending on how that schedule sits. So – I think he'll still be great in um, daily leagues, but just owners need to, need to watch the situation. He's just not going to be a set-it-and-forget-it guy toward the end of the season. In the National League, who could be a Bane hitter? Um, David Dahl. I just don't believe the 400 BABIP. I mean, it's near that. It's 398. It, he had been over it. Um, if he's not hitting 
with that level of bad up, he's, he's really just a tough guy. And he's kind of a tough guy to play almost the whole Rockies, like, on the road. Like, they're great at home, but even the hitters, it's like the pitchers, like, oh, I don't want to throw them, you know, at home. The hitters really don't want to, besides a few of them on the road. They're just really just been horrible this year, even more so than normal. So he's one that I could definitely see that maybe try to sell high with them right now. Um, but they do have a lot of home games kind of coming up because they kind of, with the scheduling, they um, MLB didn't have a lot of home games for them initially when it was like in March when it's or April where it's just freezing in Denver. So he's kind of a tough one that you may want to maybe after one of those nice home stretches when he goes on the road maybe see if you can try to trade him off over to the mound again who's an american league pitcher who could be a bane um i don't right now i'm actually worried that with like brad peacock or whoever is in at the bottom of that astros rotation i think they're going to add an arm or two and just they have so many good players in the minors that they can trade off, but they're not going to. It's like they can just add another arm. And I can see them try to get a guy that's controlled for a few years since they're going to be you. Um, I think they're losing Garrett Cole after this year. So it's one of those deals like, well, let's bring a guy in. And I just kind of think those guys are just going to get cut off the bottom of that Astros rotation. So Peacock's one. I'm, I wouldn't really be counting on him toward their end of season. I think that they're going to have someone else there. And they – don't seem to be shy about bringing up guys. Uh, Valdez, uh, Jose Urquidy got called up. They're not particularly uh, averse to bringing guys up into a winning team uh, on the batting side, of course, with Alvarez, but uh, got a couple of pitchers, so they're they're not frightened about moving guys around, that's for sure. Uh, and in the National League, who's a Bain pitcher? Um, that was Keichel. I don't know. It's horrible right now. I mean, I'm... I mean, it's just been a little bit, a few starts, but he has a 4K per nine. His ERA is at four, and his estimators are higher. You're just not getting anything from him. I mean, maybe he'll get some wins since he's on Atlanta, but if he hadn't had the name, if he hadn't had the Cy Young, if he hadn't had the holdout, I don't know how much he would actually be rostered. Like I said, I'd rather own Tommy Malone any day than Keiko right now. And um, their ownership rates don't um, show that difference. Yeah, a 160 strikeout to walk rate, we call it a command ratio at Baseball HQ, but uh, in modern baseball, you're really kind of looking for an, uh, for a starter at 2.5, 2.6 as a minimum, and he's a, a full uh, unit below that, and uh, Sierra XFIP up around 5. Uh, Dallas Keuchel looks like uh, uh, trouble. Yeah, it's, and he was trouble last year. It was like, I mean... It's one of those deals like, what improvement did you expect for him to make over last year? And is that guy really rosterable? Is he worth being on your roster this whole time? I mean, once I knew he was kind of holding out and there was any chance of it, I mean, like he's borderline anyway droppable. He's not going to be like your savior. I just don't, I didn't see him as a savior for my team. So I just had to, I just backed away. I mean, I was just, there was just nothing I saw as a positive for rostering him. Jeff Zimmerman's Baines, Shoei Otani of the Angels, David Dahl of Colorado, Brad Peacock, or whoever's at the bottom of the Houston rotation, and Dallas Keuchel in Atlanta. Uh, Jeff, this has been great. Tell our listeners where they can keep up with Jeff Zimmerman. Yeah, um, on Twitter, I'm at Jeff W. Zimmerman. I'm normally um, writing at Fangraphs. It'll die a little bit here. We've kind of got two holidays coming up, so you, 
there'll be limited stuff with the well with the All Star Game. There's just nothing to write about with fantasy and with um, the actual Fourth of July holiday. So like I said, it'll it'll kind of die here a little bit. But um, no, those are the two places that I'm normally writing at. There's a few other sites here and there, but um, that's it for now. And um, yeah, I'm I'm actually kind of ready for this kind of break where we kind of get almost a whole week off from. Yeah, just a whole week off here. And what about the Launch Angle podcast? Uh, how often does it come out? When does it come out? And what are you doing over the break? Um, we're actually gonna we're gonna do it over the break. Um, we're gonna we may we're gonna see if there's any kind of news or anything. It may be shortened because there's just not a lot going on. But we always try to do it Wednesday. Like I said sometimes that changes around, but um, usually Wednesday afternoon you can find us out on Twitter where it um, becomes available then. And it's available through all the usual aggregators, uh, iTunes uh, podcasts and Pocket Cast and Stitcher and those kind of things as well. Uh, Jeff, this has been a delight. I knew it would be a very interesting podcast that you guys do. Of course, you're a terrific writer at Fangraphs Rotographs. Uh, do appreciate you taking the time. We'll catch up with you again later on in the season. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Jeff Zimmerman writes at Fangraphs and Rotographs and is a regular panelist on the weekly Launch Angle podcast. When we come back, it's our weekly Talk with Todd. Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. But let me take a minute here to bang your ear holes about First Pitch Arizona, Baseball HQ's Fantasy Baseball Symposium at the Arizona Fall League. First Pitch Arizona is celebrating its 25th anniversary with a new hotel and new dates, but with the same extraordinary package of baseball, presentations, panel sessions, workshops, drafts, and even more baseball. I've been to First Pitch Arizona maybe a dozen times by now, and I can tell you firsthand there's absolutely nothing like it for the dedicated fantasy baseball owner. Of course, the main drawing card is the formal sessions, panel discussions, and expert presentations by some of the brightest minds in the fantasy baseball industry, and even guys like me. But the real fun is after the presentations are over. You can approach the experts, hit them up for some advice, talk about strategy, discuss the prospects you're seeing every afternoon in the Arizona Fall League. Hey, you can even offer to buy me, I mean them, a beer or two. The fun at First Pitch Arizona continues into the evenings, and this year, there's the added spice of Major League Playoff games. There's nothing like watching playoff baseball on the big screen while you're talking ball with a bunch of other fantasy owners just like you. I've met a ton of people at First Pitch Arizona who are still among my closest friends. Now, you'll want to start thinking about this and getting your calendar going pretty quickly because this year's First Pitch Arizona Symposium is starting earlier than ever. It's usually been around Halloween, but this year it runs from October 10th through the 13th, and the conference venue is new. We're meeting at the beautiful Delta Phoenix Mesa, a one-relay throw from Ho-Ho Cam Stadium and less than half an hour from Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. We even have a special conference rate at the hotel, and the last time I checked, it was at least 40 bucks cheaper than the best prices online. And that was in Canadian money. If you're a fantasy owner who takes the game seriously, but who also likes to have fun, there's no better way to spend a weekend than at First Pitch Arizona, October 10th through 13th, in Mesa, Arizona. You can find out more by going to BaseballHQ.com slash first dash pitch dash Arizona, or just go to the HQ homepage, click on the bright orange logo. It's over there on the right-hand side underneath the HQ radio block. Check it out. Get in early. You can take advantage of some early bird discounts. First Pitch Arizona, October 10th through 13th in sunny Phoenix, and we will see you there. 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Talk with Todd. And I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back. It's been a couple of weeks. Yeah, one, one of us has been a little under the weather. and The other of us has been kind of busy, so it worked out well. In your most recent Z Files column at RotoWire, you talked about first half takeaways, and this is the time that a lot of us are doing similar sorts of things. Uh, you built kind of on a column the week before about your all-value team from the first half. Uh, we, you can include some mentions of that as we go, but one of the observations you made was that there were fewer than usual outfielders in the pool of positive value players, and then you said that has enhanced the value of multi-eligible position players. They're always an advantage because of roster requirements from injuries, but why the added emphasis on on multi-position players. Yeah, I noticed this on a couple of my teams, and I thought it might have just been poor roster construction, and it may be, but I was having trouble getting the the most, you know, the, the players I wanted active in, in a given week in my lineup, because I had more middle infielders and corners that I wanted to have active than I had spots. I wasn't able to get them all in there, uh, you know, I needed it was oddly because you know they they were playing better than some of my outfielders, so I don't may, maybe I maybe I waited too long to get outfielders I don't know or they didn't perform as well as I had thought, but doing these these lists you know we do these lists in part for fun, but I kind of I'd like to take it to the next level too I want to see if there's anything you know actionable anything tangible that could be taken away and the thing i noticed from the lists was when i was putting together the teams you start from the top and you start assigning positions and usually you have to there's a couple of outfielders that don't make the first team and you kind of have to put them aside and fill in the blanks and then go back on the second team and pull in those outfielders who were one of the top performers over the first half didn't have to do that this year in fact, how to make someone like Kettle Marte and Cody Bellinger and Chris Bryan, among others, in the outfield. Not that you know, they're playing the outfield, but the point being, usually the multiple position guys find a spot in the infield. So, and this is just at the top of the, this is just at the top of the of the heap. So you, you don't want to extend it through the entire playing field necessarily, but at least at the top to get the best players in there, you need multiple eligibility players. And then I took a look at the entire. 15-team mixed field, and sure enough, outfielders, compared to previous seasons, once you included the, the second-base outfield, third-base outfield, etc., there were obviously enough to fill 15 legal lineups, 75 el- outfield eligible. But there were fewer pure outfield-only players, at least in the first half, than in previous seasons. You know, we, you can't do a knee-jerk reaction. And, you know, next year, this is how we have to draft. But, um... I just found it interesting, but going into the second half, if you don't have multiple eligibility players, either look to pick someone up on the waiver wire or make a trade for one, because you're going to be at a disadvantage when you're trying to manage your roster, because if you don't have three in a 15-team league, you're, you're behind your competitors, and if you can have more than three, you're putting someone else in a hole. So if you don't have three and, and get that chain where you can have just about every anybody active you want... You're, it's going to be tough to manage categories down the stretch. And we know, we talk about all the time, multiple eligibility players. This year, I think it's even more imperative. That's more, I think that more, it's already, it's more imperative. But it's, it's even more necessary to have that flexibility this season to get that 14th hitter into your lineup that's better than the, than the 13th that just because of positions. 
Yeah, and I think that's going to be easier and easier to accomplish in, as the years go by because more and more major league teams seem to be focusing on yeah. either acquiring that type of player or taking a player who's not that type of player and making him into that type of player. A lot of teams have these multi-eligible guys, sometimes including catchers, which is interesting as well. Uh, before the season, Todd, we talked about how you weren't buying into the popular philosophy of draft starting pitchers early. And with only nine of the top 21 preseason starters making the value team, your opinion looks like it was probably justified. But magnanimous as ever, you say, I'm not going to take a victory lap, not even <laughs> close. So why not? Well, two reasons. First of all, we're only halfway through the season. And a lot of things can still happen. But, you know, it's one of those, you know, right for the wrong reasons. This My, my reason, I didn't come out and say that, almost, you know, a little more than half of the ace pitchers are going to bust. That's not what I said, uh, or you know, my my reasoning. That wasn't my reasoning for uh, not forcing a pitcher. I wasn't against taking a starter early. I took Max Scherzer on my second chance Memorial Day league for the NFBC at the fifth spot. I mean, I I and, and that team's in in, in competition. In competing for the overall prize. I know a month into the season, but listen, it's I, I don't c- compete for overalls very often, so so it's kind of fun. But anyway, the point being, um, I, I I the reason I wasn't taking pitching early or forcing it was because I was leaving behind precious bats and uh, anticipating this season with, and it, as it turned out, so many home runs, the. RBI and runs that dovetail home runs, you would fall behind in, in these categories if you didn't take some of the top bats as well, or in lieu of pitching, because you can always manage pitching. So yeah, it looks like it looks like I was prescient by saying, you know, let's not force Jamison Tyone into the fourth round or Jose Barrios into the fourth round just to make sure you get an ace, because that's what you're supposed to do. It looks like that's the right move, depending upon what who you actually chose but the point being it wasn't for the right reasons so now it's just this is just another reason what we have to do is we have to decide if if the the reason for the bust i mean there's a couple of injuries luis severino etc but there's always injuries i think the big thing is going to be and i don't think we're going to know is what's the ball going to be like next year is mlb going to do something about the ball in the off season or is it going to continue to be the, the you know the current you know juiced form the less drag form in which case the the goal is going to be deciding which pitchers are most influenced by the few added home runs and not the few the the, the added home runs and and readjust rankings in that manner so you know s- s- still have 3 months little under 3 months to go so no victory laps yet some of these pitchers, you know, Chris Sale can go on a run. Pitchers can go on a run, and that, that 9 out of 21 can be 13 or 14 out of 21. We'll see. But um, it, it's going to be an interesting second half. You also mentioned that your biggest first half t- takeaway regarding pitching wasn't even starters at all, but it was about right. non-closing relievers. And I thought this was an interesting point. Explain why non-closing relievers have jumped into the forefront of your thinking. Yeah, uh, I heard it on, I don't remember if it was on the Fantasy Channel or the MLB Network, regular, or, you know, where I heard it, but someone mentioned that the reliever ERA was higher than the starting ERA for the season. And I've been tracking this, and it was getting to that point, but I just, I didn't, I didn't realize it actually, it had actually tiptoed over it. The reliever's ERA 
uh, surpassed starters. Now, I mean, to do fantasy, you got to break it down to the subsets of draftable pitchers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to get a real feel for it. But the point being, sort of the big picture thing is, even at the beginning of the season, relating to the schedule and fewer two-start options and the whatnot, we were talking about needing to use relievers in lieu of lesser starters in the beginning of the season. So that was kind of you know a, a game plan was to draft some some you know non closers because those are obvious to be drafting to fill in when you don't like your starting pitcher's matchup etc. The point the problem with that has been the relievers haven't pitched as well as they have in previous seasons. So not as effective filling in. It's, it now becomes a maybe you'd rather have the added case and chance of a win of a lesser starter as opposed to the not so good ratios of these relievers that you're filling in instead. Again, it really has to be a, a much bigger breakdown than I did. I just kind of did a, a quick a couple of interesting breakdowns looking at the closers this year despite the higher run environment. Closers are pitching better as a group in the aggregate, and, and, and the cutoff was anybody who has 10 saves so far compared to anybody who had 20 saves last season. In the aggregate, ERAs are better this year, and that's even and that's not and that's not even relative to the no, the league. That's just overall. And looking at the subset of uh, setup men who have 10 holds, figuring this is probably the group we're going to draw from because some of these guys could become closers or may get the off save once in a while. So if we're looking for that reliever to help us out, this is the group we're going to use. Their numbers, it's not, they're not egregiously worse than they have previously, and they're still better than the league norm. But this group, relative to last year, isn't pitching as well. So you're not getting the same level of ERA support and WHIP support than we could have than we did last season. So all it's going to what it's basically doing is it's making managing the back end of a fantasy staff that much more difficult because it's not a no-brainer just to grab the best reliever because those relievers are just as vol. And I joked about it before. Relievers use the same juice ball as starters do. You know they're they're even they're just as they're just as vulnerable to the to the juice ball effect as the starters. So it's not a no-brainer or not just you know a fallback strategy. Just all right, I'll just use a reliever instead of using whoever the starter is this week. Yeah, and one other thing, I I did break it down a little further after I uh, read your piece, and the gulf in ERA between the kind of rosterable starters and these middle relievers that we've been told year after year, these are the guys you can depend on, these are the guys with the great skills and so forth, is actually really made worse if you take out the the obvious guys who probably are already spoken for. Mm -hmm. uh, Josh Hader was certainly drafted in almost every league and, and relatively high as well. And since that time, uh, Scott Oberg in Colorado has had some really good results. John Gant in St. Louis. These guys are not closers, nor are they available. And if you remove them from the equation and just say, okay, of the of the middle reliever, non-closer relievers who are available, the ERA situation is even worse. There's going to be some off-season studies done by, I'm sure, all over the board on pitching and, you know, how did the aces do relative to the field and how, how you know, breaking it down in different subsets. And as you know, as you know, when, whenever you do a piece like this, 
you start to break it down further and then you just get lost down the rabbit hole and before you know it you're two hours late with filing and you're doing more stuff for you know that that's interesting for your own mind than it is for for the piece itself the the the, the conclusion remains the same so you back burner the research for another time and that's kind of I, I wanted to break this down into so many more and so, to so many more levels but the conclusion was still going to be the same Pitch, pitching is terrible so uh, i kind of you know backburdered further breaking it down but i'm glad you did that it just it's you know the grabbing a seth lugo is a good example he started out terrible then he was nails for so long and he's kind of famously or infamously fallen off the table a little bit he was a you know part of that and when you know why did they use lugo over edwin diaz uh with the, with the mets about a week and a half ago and at the time lugo was maybe pitching better than diaz but no one really realized it but Lugo was in a tailspin also at the time, so it was hard to tell. But the point being, you just who do you pluck as a reliever and say, okay, I'm safe. There really, there, there really isn't anybody. And last year, not that they were safe, but there were more options. And finally, Todd, in the column, your last takeaway wasn't even about players. It was about the category of stolen bases. What do we need to know about that category as we look ahead to the second half and maybe on into the further future? Yeah, now this, this is something I know I, I, I mentioned coming into the season and this in this case I you know it was right for the right reasons although I wasn't I didn't uh, you know predict if you will that the the further decline of steals but the point my point being coming into the season you know we talk about the power but but stolen bases have been on the decline and it just made sense just that's the way the game is going not to mention there's fewer opportunities because you're either hitting a home run or you're striking out there's not a whole lot of walks and singles you know singles are on, you know on a low so just the opportunities are down so it may not even be that steals are down maybe opportunities are down and therefore the stolen bases coming from those opportunities are down so relative to opportunities maybe they're still there but the point being steals are down and the category is no category in 5x5 five five is linear from top to bottom in the standing. Some are more linear than others. The, you know, the gap between uh, adjacent teams, you know, it's not always the same. Anybody who does SGP knows that. You know, that's why you use linear regression, etc. But the, the point being, stolen bases has always taken on a unique shape where the bottom couple of teams, usually because by plan, they don't focus on steals or because their big stolen base guy got hurt or isn't performing the the, the gap from the f bottom few teams is pretty wide the middle is very very bunched and then the top they start to get spread out again primarily because either they focused on steals or they have one of the 50 or 60 70 steel players and it's just it's just giving them the huge boost the category is is more bunched this season they're uh, I don't know that less teams are are, are 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 punting the category, but the bottom seems to be a little more compact, and the top is definitely a little more compact. And because there's fewer steals in general, the middle is more compact. Now there's fewer steals available, so it's it's not like you can just go out and grab guys to to make up the points. The, you know that's why it's so compact because there's fewer steals. But if you get one of the top guys, you can make up even more points than normal. And now it becomes a balance between how much you're giving up, how much you sacrifice. It's always this way. It, you know, th this isn't anything new. What's new is you may be able to get an extra couple of three points this year compared to previous seasons just because of the, 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 the fact that the steals are so more tightly compact. 20 steals a few years ago 
may have gotten you one or two or three points. 20 steals this year can get you four or five points. Now it's just a matter of what, what do you, are, you, are you getting, I don't know, Trey Turner in a trade, and he's not going to hurt you as much in power? Or are you getting, uh, I don't know, Delano DeShields or someone else who is going to, uh, you're going to need to make up, or maybe you have such a power advantage, it's not going to matter. Yeah, when I looked at my uh, my own uh, fantasy baseball invitational league, it's the a uh, fifteen mixed, uh, and the stolen base category is exactly the way you describe it. There's a couple of guys lagging way at the back. I'm one of two or three guys who are way ahead at the front, but in the middle, you mentioned twenty stolen bases, and I just looked at all these guys. Uh, the eleventh place guy jumps to second. The tenth place guy <laughs> jumps close to first, and the third and the set. There's a three way tie for seventh. All of them jump to first place in the category if they could pick up twenty bags, and they can't do that in any other category um, ob- not, obviously not with 20 of anything but if you get a, a reasonable home run guy you're going to get x number of home runs it's not going to move you that much so it's a it's an excellent point. point todd i know you have to run i appreciate you taking the time we'll catch up with you again next week already looking forward to uh pd maybe are we doing our our all-star rundown i think we will be uh stay tuned for news on that Excellent. Looking forward to it. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes, all next on Baseball HQ Radio. Back of throws. There's a left And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the weekend pitcher matchups report and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is White Sox shortstop Danny Mendick, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. 25-year-old Chicago White Sox shortstop Danny Mendick continues to be a pleasant surprise. Drafted by the White Sox in the 22nd round in 2015, yes, you heard that right, the 22nd round in 2015, Danny Mendick has ascended through the system is now producing some solid stats at the AAA level in 2019. Currently ranked 4th in steals in the International League with 15 through 73 games, Danny Mendick continues to amaze. And despite a pedestrian 267 batting average in 2019 at AAA Charlotte, Danny Mendick has also belted 10 home runs. So 10 home runs, 15 steals, not a bad power-speed combination, wouldn't you say? However, Danny Mendick seems to be effectively blocked at shortstop in Chicago for the foreseeable future by Tim Anderson despite his recent ankle injury. That's why Danny Mendick, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Yeah, maybe he's a long shot, but consider this. Back in 2016, Tim Anderson's final year at AAA Charlotte, Tim Anderson batted 304 with four home runs and 11 steals in 247 at-bats. 
Compare that to Danny Mendick's 267 batting average in 2019 with 10 home runs and 15 steals and 266 at-bats through June, and things get a little interesting. Digging deeper, something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com, Danny Mendick's 80% contact rate in 2019, which measures a batter's ability to get wood on the ball, ranks him among baseball's best hitters in 2019, according to our benchmarks. In addition, Danny Mendick has demonstrated exceptional patience at the plate. In fact, his 16% walk rate in 2019 is well above our 10% walk rate benchmark for baseball's best hitters, or walkers. Combined, Danny Mendick's 80% contact rate and 16% walk rate gives us an expectation benchmark of a 283 batting average at the major league level, according to the tools available on BaseballHQ.com. Now, just to be clear, we are not suggesting that Danny Mendick is better than Tim Anderson. Nor are we suggesting that you should trade Tim Anderson for Danny Mendick. No, don't do that, please. But we are suggesting that 2018 Birmingham Barons MVP Danny Mendick might be a breakout candidate in 2019 as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for our weekend pitcher matchups report, where we look at some of the notable games this weekend, starting with our marquee matchup. Philadelphia right-hander Aaron Nola in New York for a Sunday face-off with Mets right-hander Zach Wheeler. And here with the lowdowns on the showdowns is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. As we head past the halfway mark of the season and into the All-Star break, the next big date on the Major League Baseball calendar is July 31. That's the first ever single trade deadline, and one of the starters in our marquee matchup is rumored to be a prime target. After a breakout season last year, New York Mets 29-year-old right-hander Zach Wheeler could be headed out of Queens soon. But this Sunday, he'll be in pitcher-friendly City Field with a matchup rating of 074. The visiting Philadelphia Phillies bring in 26-year-old resurgent right-hander Aaron Nola, who has a matchup rating of 103. That matchup rating differential of 29 in favor of Nola is the smallest of all matchup rating differentials in which both starters have positive matchup ratings this weekend. The Phillies are stumbling into the All-Star break, losing 12 of their past 20 games and 18 of their past 30. Meanwhile, the Mets are in a freefall, losing 8 of their past 10 and 14 of their past 20 games. The New Yorkers have a run differential of minus 37. Versus teams over 500 like Philadelphia, they are 9 games under 500. And against right-handers, they are 8 games under 500. But at home, the Metropolitans are five games over 500. Versus teams under 500 like the Mets, the Fightin' Phils are five games over 500. And against right-handers, they're seven games over 500. But on the road, Philadelphia is six games under 500. The Phillies lead the head-to-head series 7-3, to but the Mets have won two of three in New York, so this series may turn out differently. Wheeler's surface stats look a lot worse than last year's breakout, but his underlying skills are actually better. He's putting up career bests in average fastball velocity, dominance rate and swinging strike rate, control rate and first pitch strike rate, command ratio, and base performance value. 
Wheeler's average PQS score in nine home games is 3.6, and six of Wheeler's past seven home starts have been PQS dominant. He's faced Philly three times, posting a perfect PQS dominant five at home and two PQS threes on the road. Nola has three consecutive PQS dominant outings, and all four of his PQS doms have come in his past five starts. Across his seven road starts, though, Nola's average PQS score is only 1.6. Despite career-best average fastball velocity, Nola is suffering from career worsts in home run per fly ball rate, whip, expected ERA, control rate, command ratio, and first pitch strike rate, plus second worsts in swinging strike rate, home runs per nine, and BPV. If Nola is rebounding, the Mets are a team that can help him reach his old heights, so there's good reason to go with him. Still, Wheeler warrants his slight edge. Our honorable mention matchup takes place on Saturday in Arizona's surprisingly neutral Chase Field. Unlike Denver's mile-high Coors Field, the humidor seems to be working just fine in Phoenix, thank you. And it's the Colorado Rockies who come calling with the enigma of 27-year-old right-hander Jonathan Gray, who somehow pitches better at home in Coors than he does on the road. Gray brings in a matchup rating of 040 to face 27-year-old left-handed snake strikeout artist Robbie Ray, who has a matchup rating of 158. The greatest weakness in Gray's anatomy is his whip, which is 135 for the second season in a row. That's thanks to a career-worst control rate of 3.5 walks per nine, and despite a career-best first pitch strike rate of 64%, Gray is posting a career-worst BPV of 106. Across 97 games started in the past four years, Gray's expected ERAs have ranged between 3.59 and 3.76. He's faced the Diamondbacks twice this season and twice last season, putting up a PQS Disaster 1 and a PQS Decent 2 each year. On the road in 2019, Gray's PQS scores averaged 2.2. Robbie Ray has 96 games started over the past four seasons, and his expected ERA range is nearly the same as Gray's, with a low of 349 and a high of 385. Ray's whip is 136 after being 135 last year. Ray has the higher dominance rate at 11.8 strikeouts per nine to Gray's 9.7. But Ray also has the higher control rate at 4.5 walks per nine to Gray's 3.5. Ray has faced the Rockies six times over the past two seasons, posting three PQS decent scores of two this year, one at home and two on the road, after two PQS disaster scores of one and zero, plus a PQS decent three last year. In seven home starts this season, Ray's average PQS score is 3.1, and that's what gives him the edge over Gray in what could be a high-scoring affair on Saturday. To recap, go with Wheeler, but don't necessarily avoid Nola. Take Ray over Gray, but beware of your whip and ERA. And before we leave, let's look at four teams fortunate to face two starting pitchers with matchup ratings below zero this weekend. The Oakland offense gets two Seattle starters with combined matchup ratings of minus 537. Washington faces two KC Kerosene Carriers with combined matchup ratings of minus 268. Toronto tees off against two Baltimore boys with combined matchup ratings of minus 239, and Atlanta annihilates two Miami men with combined matchup ratings of minus 195. So load your lineups with as many A's, Nats, J's, and Braves as possible, and use the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool to pick your pitchers every day. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. 
Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about my first half all-value team. Sometime in the middle of last week, some guy on Twitter posted that the 2019 baseball season had reached exactly the halfway point. He had painstakingly calculated when the season's 2430th game had reached the fifth inning and thereby become official. The season being roughly halfway done affords us an opportunity to look at which players have been the most valuable. And by most valuable, I mean provided the most value, as opposed to the definition that says, was the player with the most RBIs on a team that won a lot of games. I took all the players whom BaseballHQ.com had projected in its last projections file before the season started, and I compared their projected value to their actual year-to-date value to get a profit or loss. Then, and this is the critical difference that makes the Masternodes definition worth every penny you pay for it, I add the profit back to the year-to-date value. So a player projected for, say, $8 who earns 19 has a master notes value of $30. He gets his $19 year-to-date production plus his $11 profit. Without the add back, a player with, say, a $7 year-to-date on a $2 projection, a 5 buck profit, would be the same value as a player with $42 production on a $37 projection. And frankly, that's just silly. You'd way rather have the guy with $42. One other note. Any player who was projected below a buck was automatically given a preseason value of $1, since we're not allowed to bid negative values at auction, although it sure would be interesting if we could. The players are ranked by position, one at each infield slot plus three outfielders. There's no DH, no utility player, which should not be interpreted as any sort of political statement about the DH. There are five starters, no relievers. Multi-eligible players were slotted where they created the most value relative to the next available player at either of the two positions or more where they were eligible. Ready? Let's go. The Master Notes all-value catcher was Yasmani Grandal, $5 preseason projection, $25 in net value. At first base, Peter Alonzo, a $1 preseason projection, $26 year-to-date, $25 profit, and a $51 Master Notes value. Second base, DJ LeMayhew at $54. Third base, Raphael Devers at $50. Shortstop Kettle Marte at $43. Outfielders, Cody Bellinger at 65, Christian Yelich at 58, Domingo Santana at 45, and our starting pitchers, Lucas Giolito, a $1 projection with a $27 year-to-date value, a $26 profit adding up to $53 in Master Notes value, followed by Justin Verlander at 49, Mike Miner at 45, Jake Odorizzi at 41, and Charlie Morton at 40. Let me say a few words about some of these guys. Yasmani Grandal had a pretty lofty home run projection of 25 home runs, but he's already at 18 in the cozy confines of Miller Park, so he looks well on track to soar past his projection and, in fact, to soar past 30 home runs. He's also logged three stolen bases for the half season, and his 265 batting average is 19 points better than he was projected. Third baseman Raphael Devers was projected to have 68 RBIs and 64 runs scored for the entire season, but as of June 30th, halfway, he had already logged 54 RBIs in 62 runs, and his year-to-date 322 batting average, 70 points higher than his projected 252. 
I asked Jeff Zimmerman of Fangraphs and Rotographs about why we didn't see Devers' astonishing performance coming, and he said it was all but impossible to predict Devers' very sudden 8 percentage point decline in striking out. All the more remarkable and perhaps concerning is that Devers' huge increase in contact has come even though he's actually chasing more pitches outside the strike zone. He's not paying a price because he's making contact on more of them as well. It seems putting the ball into play means good things can happen, but putting it into play off out-of-zone contact could mean bad things could start happening as well. Outfielder Cody Bellinger at $65 is the early frontrunner for MVP, both fantasy and real, having already eclipsed his full-season home run projection of 26 and reached 80% of the way to his projected RBIs and runs. More remarkably, he was 79 points ahead of his 267 projected batting average and 94 points ahead of his 346 projected on base. The only area where he's not scorching his projection is stolen bases, but he is right on track to get his projected 16 bags. Like Devers, Bellinger has built his newfound production on a foundation of much higher contact and much higher hard contact, a 155 hard contact index this season versus 108 last. Outfielder Domingo Santana at $45 of Masternode's value had a $25 season in 2017 with a 30 home run, 85 RBI season and a 278 batting average. He's well ahead of that pace in RBI and runs. He's on pace with batting average. At the same time, his underlying skills are also pretty much the same as that previous $25 year, except his content is up a little, his walk rate is up a little, his XBA is down a little, and his home run per fly ball down a little. And one item that really jumps out, his line drive rate has jumped by 6 percentage points, and his fly ball percentage is up by 5 percentage points, pushing his ground ball rate down by 11. Fewer ground balls, more fly balls means more home runs, more extra base hits. And starting pitcher Lucas Giolito. Lucas Giolito was likely undrafted in many or even most 15-team mixed leagues and went for a dollar or two in AL-onlys. After his pre-2019 career, which was at best undistinguished and at worst catastrophic, a 548 combined ERA over that time, a 140 whip, including a league-worst 148 in 2018, a dominance rate of just 6.4 strikeouts per nine, a walk rate of 4.3 walks per nine, and his projection this season, pretty much more of the same. Nine wins, a 472-146 decimals, 127 strikeouts, around 7 strikeouts per 9, and a minus $10 projection. And frankly, I have to say that 9-win projection looked a little loopy in hindsight for a bad pitcher on a weak team. Surprise, surprise, Lucas Giolito already has 11 wins. He has a 272 ERA, a 102 whip, and 115 strikeouts already with a dom rate near 11 strikeouts per 9. Now, ordinarily, I wouldn't know what to make of Giolito's resurgence or its sustainability, but I happened to be watching a White Sox game telecast recently where the announcers were talking about how Giolito had been taking active steps to deal with what sounded like really difficult pre-game and in-game anxiety attacks. I did a little research, as little as possible, and I learned that Giolito had been using a practice called neurofeedback, which he was turned on to by a teammate from his high school team. Max Freed, now out of Atlanta. And by the way, St. Louis starter Jack Flaherty also in that same high school rotation with Giolito and Freed. You can get more details about the process by searching Giolito with neurofeedback in Google, but the object lesson here is that it's not always a purely physical problem that gets in the way of player success.
I also took a moment to look up the top 10 teams in the overall competition in the great Fantasy Baseball Invitational at the halfway point to see which players were most common across the successful team's rosters. I assumed I'd see a lot of guys from the Master Notes value list, but in fact there were just a few. The two players most heavily represented were two non-MNVers, Pittsburgh first baseman Josh Bell and Texas outfielder Nomar Mazzara were both on five of the ten leading teams. Bellinger was on four top teams, Yelich on just a couple. No top Masternodes value starting pitcher was on more than one team. The top starters were Garrett Cole, Yanni Chirinos, and Zach Eflin, who were each on four of the top ten teams, and David Price, who was in three. The rest of the players... Eric Hosmer, Nick Senzel on four teams each, Christian Vasquez, Matt Carpenter, Mike Moustakas, Trevor Story, and Wilson Contreras were on three teams each. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 5th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 29 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs and the Launch Angle podcast. Jeff is a very accomplished baseball analyst and writer and a terrific guest here on our show. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our market watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishway. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast or iTunes, wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again for sure on next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast. But there's a good chance we'll also be back earlier in the week with a mid-season round table edition. Stay tuned. Watch for that on Twitter. Watch for that on the Baseball HQ site. Watch for it wherever you watch for it. Watch for it in your podcatcher if you want. And we'll be back one way or another with either one or two editions of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.